Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you hit that subscribe button, and I hope you're digging what we're doing here. Lord knows I've been digging what I've been doing lately, including getting all these new five-star reviews for helping people do what I love the most. No, not talking about old wrestling, but that's second. I'm talking about helping families just like yours save tens of thousands of dollars at savewithconrad.com. This is what we're talking about. We would love to help you save some cash right now. If you're in a 30-year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, there's never been a better time to save money than right now. Just passed my 19-year anniversary in the mortgage business, and I've never been able to offer rates as low as I can right now. I've also never been licensed in as many states. If you can hear my voice, there's a good chance I'm licensed in your state. And it's free to find out how much money you can save right now at SaveWithConrad.com. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. But don't take my word for it. Just ask Joseph in Alexandria, Virginia. He gave us a five-star review and said, fantastic service, great attention to detail, simple and easy process. How about over in Perryton, Texas? Jarrell says, Conrad, David, and Jennifer were complete professionals, and I had recommended them already to a couple. I couldn't put them over more if I tried. Thank you again for helping us out in a major way. I won't forget it. What about up in Gallatin, Texas? William gave us a five-star and he says, Jimmy did a fine job keeping me informed and working through a couple of unique things involving our original loan. Would be sure to recommend this fine team to anyone. How about Christina moving down from New York City? Yep, she wrote, as first-time home buyers coming from out of state, naturally, this is a very stressful process but save with Conrad was a blessing. The entire team is helpful, courteous, and just made the entire experience so much easier and more pleasant than it could have been. I can't thank save with Conrad enough. Thank you for everything you've done for my family. The reviews keep on coming guys. Five-star reviews one after another. You're going to save a boatload of cash. If you're in a 30 year loan, we're going to show you how to pay your house off faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Maybe you've been throwing your money away on rent. You don't need a huge down payment or perfect credit to buy a house. We can help you make it happen right now. And maybe best of all, if you've got credit card debt, I can save you five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention interest rates in the twos? I can't believe that's real, but just last week we locked a bunch of new loans with interest rates in the twos. My only advice to you is hurry. Barry Habib is the foremost expert on interest rates. You've probably seen him on every cable news service. Just last week, he advised that we're on borrowed time with these rates. The time to act is now. Get ahead of this. You're going to be kicking yourself. You missed this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Keep more of your own money. Go to SaveWithConrad.com right now before it's too late. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. 
Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That's no hassle, no risk. Expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Man, it's a it's just another great day here. I love the fall. This is my time of year. You know, the NFL's getting back into the swing of things. Today being Sunday, we're taping the show on Sunday. The first game uh, on uh, for Sunday games. Obviously, Thursday they played. So I'm, you know, it's just kind of, it's a change in mood. It's you know, the sun's going down a little later. Excuse me, a little earlier. It comes up a little later. The leaves are starting to turn. The air smells a little different. Animals are all getting into the rut. I always love when the animals get into the rut. It just changes everything for me. So it's all good, man. It's great. Well, I agree. But maybe I'm liking right now a little differently than you are because I watched Fall Brawl 94 this week and I forgot what a fun show this was. I, uh, I wasn't watching wrestling when this one happened back in 94. But when I got back in in 96, I tried to play catch up and Man, it's been so long since I sat down and watched this one. And I know that we're going to beat it up the good, the bad, and the ugly. But my first impression watching this back was all nostalgia, man. I really like this show. It it was fun for me too, man. I, I I don't think I watched it since I did it in 1994. So we're, we're going back a piece here, son. Um, but it was really cool, you know, seeing so many, so many great names, of course, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but Dusty was really, you know, a big part of the show and I think just changed the feel for it completely for me. And look, a lot of that has to do with my affection for Dusty and my memories of Dusty and, you know, the nostalgia and the just the fun that we used to have together. So I'm sure that it may have affected me a little bit more than others. But, you know, other people grew up being much, you know – more of a Dusty Rhodes fan than I did. I didn't really become familiar with Dusty till very, very late in my AWA career and, and really didn't get to know him at all until WCW. So uh, there's some longtime fans out there of Dusty Rhodes that may get a real kick out of what we have in store for him. I think this is probably one of the last big, high-profile Dusty Rhodes moments, probably certainly his last main event. 
uh, for WCW. Of course, we know he's going to pop up and do some things with ECW and Steve Carino years later, but man, there was something special about the build for this, of course, and we're going to get into it, but the backstory is you can't trust that damn Arn Anderson. And he turns on Dustin Rhodes when Dustin really needed his help against Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck. So now it's three on one and we like the idea of there being a war games, but Dustin needs a partner. And man, that promo where dusty asked to be Dustin's partner and asked him to seal it with a hug and a kiss. It's like, holy cow, what a major moment. I mean, you got to think it's top 10 moment for Dustin in his entire career, which at this point spans more than 30 years. That's really saying something, but it's probably a top 10 dusty Rhodes WCW moment too. Don't you think? I, I, I do. And I'm again, I'm, I'm just not a very good judge of things like that because of my personal feelings, but it, I don't want to make this all about me. Right. Even though it kind of sort of is half my show, but I, I want to go back to what I was talking about just a few moments ago when we opened up the show, you know, the fall for whatever reason, the fall is always, since I was a little kid, the fall was always my favorite time of year. And being here in Wyoming and then watching this early this morning and seeing Dusty and hearing Dusty's promo, especially, and watching Dusty in the ring, <clears throat> and I thought he looked great, by the way, if this was his last main event, indeed, then he he, he went out a star uh, in, in terms of his in-ring performance. But it reminded me of a hunting trip that Dusty, Dustin, Mrs. B., Myself, Doug Dillinger, who is the head of security at WCW, um, <clears throat> Doug and Dusty and, and Dustin all came out to Wyoming. I had property here at the time. I'm not, and I didn't have the house, but we, we had property here. And I was still, you know, I was coming out here to Wyoming every opportunity that I could. And I would tell Dusty, because Dusty liked to hunt. You know, Dusty and I hunted doves together. We hunted duck and pheasant together. And Dusty really liked to hunt. He wanted to come out west and hunt in the mountains. So I invited him and Doug and Dustin out. And we all stayed at a... Uh, uh, a ranch, a real working ranch, not like a, a TV ranch, but a, a legitimate working ranch up in the Bighorn Mountains. And they took us up to a remote camp, like way, 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 way from everything. And it was, the camp was actually a old, like 1958 mobile home. It, it was not much of a camp. Let's put it that way. But they had a great cook. And I can't remember her name for the life of me. Mrs. B remember. I'm, I'm sure she since long past because she was pretty old then. But the woman could cook like no one else. Nothing. I had never experienced anything like it. And we had so much fun on that hunt um, between Lori and I and, and Dusty and Dustin and Doug. And, you know, we got to know each other pretty well. And it was – that's what this reminded me of this morning because it's that time of year and – then this thing pops up and it was right about that same time frame. And it just reminded me of that experience that I had. And <clears throat> that alone made me really grateful that we're covering this show today. Cause it was fun reliving those memories in my head. This is just a great show. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. We're going to get into it. First of all, I do want to remind you, you can participate in next week's show. We're going to continue the fall brawl theme. We're doing fall brawl 95 next week. And if you've got a question, you can ask an on Twitter over at 83 weeks, the main event of that war games show is a little different in 95. We've got Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, and sting taking on the dungeon of doom. 
but we've also got some interesting stuff underneath, including Arn Anderson versus Ric Flair in a singles match, the Harlem heat taking on bunkhouse buck and Dick Slater diamond Dallas page working with the renegade for the TV title, Sergeant Craig Pittman taking on Cobra. And of course, Johnny B bad working with Brian Pillman. So 95 is a totally different WCW, or at least it looks and feels totally different to me. Let's get into 94 though. We're covering this one today because well, it's about that anniversary time. It went down September 18th, 1994 at the Roanoke civic center in Roanoke, Virginia. We've got about 6,500 fans in a building. Only 5,200 of those were paying customers though. The gate's 61,000. And even with all the paper, we're still at just 65% capacity. The building holds around 10,000. WCW is a bit of a company in transition. You know what? We just had this monster pay-per-view. Uh, at bash at the beach, we've got Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair now, but now we're trying to sort of rebound to what our next major thing is, but we don't probably have it in our contract where we can use Hogan every month, or maybe that's just a decision where you didn't want to overexpose him. You didn't want to use him every month. Uh, talk me through the decision to get Hulk Hogan, how you have this huge event in July at bash at the beach, him and Flair, but now as we Fast forward a couple of months, it feels like we're not exactly keeping that same momentum going. Well, I'll comment first on, on Hogan. I mean, we've covered, you know, acquiring Hulk and, and all of the challenges that were part of that in a lot of previous episodes. So I won't get into the background on that. Um, but I, w- I will say with regard to the four pay-per-views a year, that was right from the very beginning, the earliest part of the negotiations, it was made clear, you know, by Hulk through Henry Holmes that he, he you know, he wanted a limited agreement, meaning he didn't want to be on six or eight or 12 pay-per-views a year. I think Hulk, and I'm I, certainly not speaking for him. And we did talk about it, you know, years later as to why he was so adamant about that. And Hulk knew, you know, early on that he was an attraction. He, he wasn't a day player, meaning, he, you know, he wasn't, not that WCW was on the road 300 days a year at the time we weren't, we were probably out 150 or 180 dates a year and losing money every time we went out the door. And Hulk didn't want to be a part of that. You know, first of all, he didn't want the grind. Number one, he left WWE when he did probably in large part because of the issues revol- revolving around the steroid trial and, and all that controversy. And then there were, you know, there were creative issues and the whole ultimate world thing and there were, there were a lot of creative issues and I, you know, I will call them political issues but I think the primary issue that that caused Hulk to leave was the schedule he wanted to pursue movies he wanted to pursue television and you can do neither um, while you're working you know the kind of schedule that Hulk worked in WWE and he didn't want to end up in the same type of schedule in WCW Additionally, he knew that we couldn't afford to pay him the amount of money that he would have been making had he worked a full schedule in, in WWE. I mean, it was not apples to apples. So it right out of the chute, we were four pay-per-views a year. And keep in mind, at the time, I think we might have – I don't know how many pay-per-views we were doing in 94 because we started adding them, it seemed like, weekly. But in 94, we might have only been at six or eight pay-per-views a year. Um and Hulk figured, well, if I'm an attraction and we built story up 
you know, for the weeks leading up to four of those pay-per-views, that's about as much Hulk Hogan as the audience is going to be willing to, uh, to get excited about. So it was, it was smart. You know, it was a less is more kind of a strategy. Um, and it, I, I think it made a lot of sense. WCW in 94 does have an interesting string of pay-per-views. Super Brawl 94 goes down, of course, in February. It's Big Van Vader and Rick Rude. In April, we've got really a blowaway show. Spring Stampede 94, this time with Flair and Steamboat. Then we've got Slamboree, which is more of a Legends deal in May. And then The Monster, Bash at the Beach 1994. What a huge show that was. It's with Hogan and Flair. And now we're looking at the follow-up effort. And of course, we're going to be setting up the big Halloween Havoc show, uh, which is a showdown between Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair that we'll get into, but it does feel like this era, you know, is really defined by Hulk Hogan. You've got the first half of the year, pre Hulk Hogan, the second half of the year with Hulk Hogan. Let's get into the nitty gritty. We've got six matches on the show. Uh, a seventh is a dark match. And that's going to of course happen before the show starts their live broadcast. This is the second ever fall brawl pay-per-view. Uh, I think the first fall brawl was a clash of the champions and it is a little weird that Hulk Hogan is not here, but we're going to find a way to work him into a big spot on the show. And Meltzer says, because there is no Hogan and because there is no flair, as far as bell to bell action, the expectations are kind of low for this event. And, and Meltzer says, no one expects it to do better than about half the buy rate that bash at the beach did. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, you know, going into this, we're telling stories, we're going to have some good matches, but we're not necessarily bringing out the big guns for this one. So it's not necessarily a shock if it doesn't blow us away by rate wise. Well, I mean, the question, you know, after you read Dave's comments, the question was, was that fair to say? Um, I don't know if it's true to say. Let's put, let's start out with what's true or not when Dave says, you know, no one expects it to do well. Well, who, who's no one, first of all, who did he talk to was no one, a representative of, of WCW or somebody that was in the pay-per-view part of WCW's business, uh, in terms of marketing and promotion and things like that. Was it, I mean, who was that? So before I could say if it was fair, we have to start with, is it true? And as so often with Dave, you don't know what's true because he did, he didn't say who he talked to or he wasn't specific. He didn't have a source. He didn't have any data. All he said was, eh, most people don't think it's going to do that well because Rick and Hulk aren't on the card. I, I, I think what is fair to say is that historically certain pay-per-views did and still do better than other pay-per-views. And a lot of the, there's a, number of reasons why, you know, the legacy of the pay-per-view, you know, Royal rumble has, you know, a great legacy SummerSlam. Now, obviously WrestleMania, you know, with WCW was, you know, the great American bash and ultimately became Halloween havoc and Starcade. And there are certain pay-per-views that you could always count on to do pretty well. Some of that had to do with the time of year. Um, some of that had to do with competition. Some of it had to do with obviously what was going on, you know, storyline wise, but for the most part, 
we would go into to be more specific to your question, we would go into certain pay-per-views with either heightened or lower expectations based on previous year's performance. That would be a fair thing to say, but I don't recall there being, when I say, I don't recall, everybody loves to jump over. He doesn't recall anything. Fuck you. I recall more than you can imagine. I do. I produced over 5,000 hours of television and I can still talk about this shit to some degree of accuracy every once in a while, despite the fact that we're talking about things that took place long before most of our listeners were even born. So when I say I can't recall, give me a fucking break. That being said. <laughs> I like that you just needed to get that off your chest first thing this morning. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100 day, 100% money back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning gifts that say, I love you every single day backs with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. Just go to, I hate fast, free and safe shipping. Steven singer jewelers. That's I hate you know what? I'm just putting things in context. Now I used to say, well, let's just put things in context, but that it just kind of runs off people's back. It doesn't, they don't absorb it. So I decided that when I make these disclaimers, I would make them a little bit more colorful so that even people in, in a fog, if you just got up, like I did several hours ago, I got up to caffeinate in order to do this show. If somebody would ask me a question, like at six o'clock in the morning, five minutes after I woke up, I would, you know what I mean? It takes a while. So even for those people who are just getting up, it's Monday morning at 6 a.m. You've been waiting for this podcast to drop since before you went to bed last night. And you turn this thing on first thing in the morning and you're hearing me making some kind of weak ass fucking disclaimer. And of course, you're not going to pay any attention. But if I add a little texture to the thought, if I take you a little deeper than just surface information, you might understand where I'm coming from. And that was my goal, my intent, the premise, if you will, of that disclaimer. I'm going to say, if you will, a lot on this show, because I watched Dusty this morning and everything that you ask me, the first thing that pops into my mind before it makes its way to my tongue is, if you will, baby. But I'm not going to do that through the whole show because that would be fucking obnoxious. What was the question? Oh, was it fair? Was it fair? Fair to say, <laughs> yes, we probably had lowered expectations. We probably had lowered expectations, but I think it would be uh, Meltzerish. <laughs> it would be Meltzerish to assume that that was because Flair or Hogan weren't on the card. Well, let's talk about it. It's not the most famous WCW show, but gosh, there's a lot happening here. It's going to feature Cactus Jack leaving WCW. 
Steve Austin winning and losing a championship in very controversial fashion. Ric Flair being brought out of retirement and perhaps best of all, Colonel Robert Parker shitting his pants. Uh, so if that doesn't make you want to keep listening to this episode, just turn it off now. No, it's Sunday morning. It's a beautiful morning. I'm looking outside. Conrad says, how are you today? And I say, I'm doing great. I'm enjoying the fog. And little do I know that I'm going to be discussing Colonel Robert Parker evacuating his bowels in his white pants. Wonderful. Let's talk about the other shit that was in the news before we get to the show. Uh, Can I interrupt you though? Yeah. Can I interrupt you? There's been a, there's a long line of people that have shit themselves in the ring. I didn't know that. Oh, there's man shitting in the there's wrestling like a, ring. Goes there's way like a back. top 10 list. Well, Flair shit in the ring, shit themselves in the ring. Uh, we know for sure that Andre shit and he shit on bad news. And we know that Flair shit in some pink trucks wrestling Ricky steamboat. And we know that a WrestleMania 13 Sid shit his pants wrestling the undertaker. Of course, we know Colonel Robert Parker is going to shit his pants in the main event. Um, CM Punk. CM Punk famously took a body slam on SmackDown and shit his and pants. And laughs about it. Yes. He thinks it's funny. Yes. Of <laughs> course, what else are you going to do? You know, you're going to feel bad about it, right? You can't do anything about it. You ever shit your Talk pants in the ring? about not being able to put that bullet back in the barrel. <laughs> I mean, once, it's, once you're done, you're done. <laughs> what say you? You ever shit your pants? No. Not, dude, not, not maybe wrestling. when I was a kid, but you know, Whoa, whoa, whoa hang on now. I didn't give the qualifier in the ring. You as an adult, haven't accidentally shit your pants. Why are you lying to us? I haven't. I don't have a problem with that. I never had Eric. You've never had like a little, you, what you thought was a little sneaker fart and there was a little more heat behind it. Come on. Well, that's not the same. As oh yeah. Pants. A short is the, a short is shitting in your pants. Just acknowledge to everybody that you're human. I know you look like well, a model. Well, when I think about somebody shitting their pants, I'm not talking about, you know, trace evidence here. I'm talking about something that you could put on a scale and weigh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I count it. If there's uh even shrapnel counts in my world. Fuck. Remind me not to come to Alabama. <laughs> I'm not be afraid. <laughs> I love that you think we're going to be checking. Uh, let's talk about some news as we head into the show. Early in September, it's going to break that Madison Square Garden has canceled a WCW show that was scheduled for November 26th. And instead, they're going to give the date to the World Wrestling Federation. Imagine and that. what's that? Imagine that. I can't believe that happened. <laughs> The reports were that you guys were going to try to have the biggest house show of the year, or certainly the biggest live gate of the year with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair headlining at Madison square garden. And, uh, David right after the garden, which in the midst of an ownership change initially gave WCW the date, apparently the WWF got wind of it and produced a contract, which stated they had the right of first refusal on any wrestling dates in the main arena and were exercising that right. While this may be premature, there was a lot of speculation within WCW that they would attempt to book the Meadowlands and run head to head on that day in the New York market against Titan. Since it's one of the three weekends that Hogan had to agreed to work us arena dates. There's talk of a lawsuit resulting from this. And we've heard that they've even threatened legal action by WCW over unequal access to major arenas, going back to the beginning of the company and nothing has transpired. Talk to me about this. Was that originally an idea? MSG 
Hogan Flair seems like a big one. Yeah, no, it was. And it, I mean, this, this was one of, I think a handful of occasions where WCW tried to do business with Madison square garden and, you know, WWE had a long standing relationship with, with MSG going all the way back to Vince's father. Um, so they had, they had a, fr- I don't I can't remember what the, I don't recall exactly what the details of the WWE Titan sports agreement was with MSG. Not that I ever knew it to begin with or had access to it, but there was language in there that essentially allowed through, you know, some creative legal language that, that probably would pass the sniff test at a local New York court. Um, that allowed them to essentially block any other wrestling promotion from coming in to, to MSG. It might require, for example, if we were going to book a date and in this case, WWE found out about it and they wanted to exercise the rights that preexisted in their agreement prior to finding out about WCW. If they were to go back to that agreement say, Oh, see right here, it says if anybody, any other wrestling promotion wants to book a date, we have the right of, of first refusal for that date so that we could book it. WCW could book it theoretically. Vince McMahon could have woke up the next morning and found out about it from the janitor who, who used to work in the building when Vince's father did and say, Hey, Mr. McMahon, I just found out that I have to work overtime on this weekend because WCW is coming here with the house show that would enable Vince McMahon to get off of the weight machines, right? Get out of the gym reach into his bag for his, I'm sure in 94, he had a mobile phone, right? Yeah. Most of us have mobile phones in 94. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he did. Fuck. He probably had the first one that was ever made, but he would have been able to get on the phone. He would have been able to call somebody at MSG that he had a relationship with again, a long standing relationship and said, Hey, what the fuck? I just heard from George. The WCW is coming into MSG with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. By God, I'm not going to let that happen. Right. God damn it. Book the date. Book the date. And then I could hear somebody in Vince's office saying, but, but Vince, we're already scheduled to wrestle. I don't give a damn. God damn it. MSG is my house. Nobody's coming into MSG. Book the date. I don't care if we lose money, book the date. That's what happened. I'm guessing. I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I don't know. George, the janitor that was friends with Vince's dad. I've heard a little bit about him. I don't know him. Never had a conversation with him. I've heard stories about him. So I can't say I wasn't there. I'm just giving you what I would imagine that that conversation might've looked like and the ability that Vince had within the language of a pre-existing contract that would enable him to keep WCW or anybody else with the balls to try to run MSG out of MSG. You just know the same story that I know about George, the janitor's deal. I, look, I don't like to talk about people that are no longer with us, as you know, so let's just let it lie, but they're great stories. They're great. Let's talk about Starcade. Uh, Meltzer is going to report that, uh, Starcade is going to be moved from San Antonio because the WWE plans to run survivor series 94 there too. So now Starcade is going to Nashville and Meltzer is going to speculate that there were rumors of returning to Charlotte. 
Uh, but Hulk Hogan might veto that idea since he'd get booed out of the building. Boy, I know you're going to have fun with that. Like the idea that Hogan could or would pick a town. Like, I don't know. Seems silly. It's just, uh, it is what it is, baby. (laughs) Sorry. That's one. I'm going to give myself five. All right. We got one down four to go kids. Meltzer's going to report that the business is hurting. He says the business is in a trouble spot. Uh, essentially the, the new fall season has started up sort of negatively for pro wrestling. Local syndication reports showed that the WWF and WCW shows were moving from favorable time slots to well, times that were much harder to thrive in. Uh, specifically, he says, quote, WCW lost at San Jose and was moved from 10 AM to past midnight in San Francisco which eliminates the kids audience just before they were to start promoting the Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair match for October 15th in Oakland. This is a challenging era. I mean, 94 has not exactly been described as a banner year for the WWF either, but you've got to feel like, you know, even though maybe business isn't where you hope it is, it feels like you've got all the positive signs and momentum you could ever want on the heels of bash at the beach. Right. I mean, there's two different, um, angles from which you kind of have to look at this scenario that you just described Uh, in 94. Yeah. The business was down, you know, business had been down for WWE and WCW for a long time leading up to this time in 1994, September of 1994. So in general, yes, the business wasn't just down, you know, this month it had, or because of the new fall season, as they put it, this is by 19, by September of 1994, you know, we were looking at a lot of losses in syndication because syndication was changing. You know, there were so many things going on just like today, you know, you know, over the last five years or three years, whatever it's been, where streaming is now something that every, you know, five years ago, people would, I would remember when I was still producing television with Jason and, and we were independent producers and, you know, you'd hear, cause you're constantly surrounded by people in the television industry, whether they be agents or attorneys or other producers or, you know, peers that we worked with or, you know, executives with networks that we were dealing with, you know, 12 hours a day, we were surrounded by people in the television industry. And it was just, you know, five or six years ago, seven years ago, streaming was something that was like, it it, it was like a, a flying car. Everybody knew that someday it was going to happen, but nobody really understood the impact of it. But we were beginning to see the impact, not of streaming, it hadn't been conceived of at this point when the technology wasn't there, but cable had begun to really grow. And as a result of the growth in cable syndication across the board, not just with WWE or WCW, but any kind of syndication was beginning to really suffer because of the growth and the expansion in cable. And it, 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 it mandated a lot of shifts in programming strategy at the syndicated level. And again, for people who are listening here, we would throw terms around like syndication and things like that. Let's make sure people understand what that is. Syndication is, um, in the case of WCW, we would obviously we had the WCW Saturday night show. We had the main event show on TBS on Sunday night. And then we produced WCW worldwide, which was a syndicated product. We 
produced WCW Pro, which was also a, a syndicated product. And then I think there was a third one that was more of a compilation show. I, I, it might have been uh, main event syndication, but it was essentially a, com- a composite show of matches that took place in all the other programs. Um, that was our syndicated show. So we would produce those shows specifically to be one-hour shows because in a syndicate in, in a local television market, the commercial break times were different than they were in in cable. So we would essentially tailor that one-hour show for a syndicator's needs. And those were standard across the syndication network. There was no variation. It wasn't like Sacramento wanted one thing and San Jose wanted another. Detroit wanted something else that Chicago didn't want. It wasn't that. It was like a one-size-fits-all format. And we would produce these shows and we would sell them. Now, when I say sell, sell could come in the form – it could come in a couple different forms. We would We would enter into a contract. And – in most cases, I would say 75% of those cases, that sale or that transaction between WCW and any local market anywhere in the country, pick one, there was an agreement in place. And they were usually standard, but there were some variations thereof. The majority of them gave us a 50-50 split, meaning the, the lo- we would send the program. It was called a barter. Um, we would send the program to the, to the network. They would, if there were 12 minutes of commercial time in that program, the local market would re- would retain six of those 12 minutes. WCW would retain six minutes. Now, WCW could use those to promote a local live events when they happen. If there was no live event, they could promote pay-per-views as they were being promoted or built. Um, if there was no pay-per-view to promote or we decided not to promote a pay-per-view in a specific market, not that that would have happened, but we could then take whatever inventory was left for whatever reason out of our six minutes, and we would then resell them for national advertisers. Because keep in mind, your local television station that's airing our show, they're not trying to sell their portion of the commercial inventory to Eminem Mars or to Castrol or to... Budweiser or any national advertiser, the local market is selling those commercials that they that they had. They're six minutes. They're selling them to the local car dealership or a local restaurant or whatever whatever's going on locally. WCW sold them nationally. That that in this, in essence is is what the syndication business looked like for a long time. But as cable became more and more popular, more and more homes were were being wired for cable. There was more and more – there's a term in, in Nielsen households using television or hut, hut levels. Um, excuse me. Hut levels don't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. Um, penetration in the market. You know, There were certain markets where cable wasn't as popular as it, it was in other markets, but it was growing. And as a result of that growth, the syndication business started to really change and was getting more and more difficult. One last kind of point of reference. There used to be a, a, a convention – called the NAPTI Convention, the National Association for for Programming and Television Executives, I think is what it stands for, N-A-P-T-E. And every independent producer, especially the big ones, and there were a lot of, if you go back in, you know, the early 90s, you know, Fox, uh, Sony, you know, there were a ton of really, really 
powerful companies that did nothing but produce and distribute programs for syndication. Um, the, the one that will come to my mind – well, one that comes to my mind that everybody knows about is called Baywatch. That was – those were independent producers um, that came up with that show format, packaged it, produced it, and sold it exclusively into the syndication market. They didn't even want to take it to NBC or CBS or ABC. They wanted to be out in the independent syndicated market, and they made a fortune with that show. But that was one of the last, I think – I'm not an expert on this. I don't spend a lot of time researching it. But I think Baywatch might have been one of the last really successful syndicated products out there. And then – We'd go to these NAPTI conventions. Like the last one that I went to, I remember – I don't remember what year it was. might have been 93 or 94 because I'd always go. They were a fucking riot. Oh, my god. They were fun. They were usually held in Las Vegas. Every other year, I think they'd put them in New Orleans. I wouldn't go to New Orleans. I'd only go to Las Vegas. And they were so much fun. But I went to one that was actually in Miami. It was the last one. And – Reicher Entertainment, R-Y-S-H-E-R, I think. Reicher Entertainment, by the way, is the company that produced uh, Baywatch. They also, for you wrestling fans out there, um, were the producers of Thunder in Paradise. And I think the goal – I'm getting off track here a little bit. But the goal by Reicher Entertainment was to kind of model Thunder in Paradise after the success that they had built, particularly in the international markets – in uh, the, the success, they want to replicate the success they had with Baywatch, and they were attempting to do that with Thunder in Paradise. Um, Baywatch probably made as much or more, I'm guessing now, I don't have any research to back this up, I'm not claiming it to be a fact, but I would not be surprised if Baywatch didn't make more money internationally than it ever did in the United States, and it was a huge hit in the United States. But the last, going back to Nappy in, in Miami, the last one I went to, Reicher Entertainment had the fucking Eagles booked for a private concert. Just to give you a sense of scope of how big that nappy convention was so that Reicher could in, in, invite all of the different producers and executives and television, you know, program directors and general managers and all the people that they were the buyers. Those were the consumers of syndicated product. Those are the, the program directors, general managers were the ones that had to sign off on acquisitions. So they would throw these massive fucking parties. It was awesome. The food, the music, the bands, the entertainment, the locations were just off the chart. And uh, now you could go to a nappy convention in the Huntsville Municipal Auditorium. Yeah. That's how big they are now. So when Dave's referencing going all the way back 20 minutes ago when you asked me a very simple question, you know, is it fair to say that, you know, the syndication market was suffering? Of course it is. It was across the boards, but at least now, because we endeavor to enlighten, we have the smartest wrestling, and I'm smart, I don't mean wrestling smart, all right? I mean intelligent, well-read. A lot of people are intelligent, but they're still pretty stupid. Stupid or ignorant is a better way to say it. They're very intelligent. They have the means by which to learn things. They're not dumb people. They're not uneducated people. But so many people are ignorant in the literal sense of the term, meaning they just don't have knowledge of. Like there's a lot of things I'm ignorant of, you know, a, a lot. Um, but it's not because I'm not smart. It's just because I haven't spent any time learning about it. Um, and it's important 
one of the reasons I love doing this show is because we have the opportunity to enlighten a vast, vast group of listeners from all four corners of the globe. I mean, the people that listen to this podcast come from countries that you have to Google in order to find on a map. That's how many people listen to this show. But one thing all of those people all around the the world have in common is they come here because they want to be enlightened. They want to learn things that they can't learn on any other podcast. Yeah, everybody loves to hear stories about one guy shitting in another guy's gym bag. Yeah, I guess that's funny. But you don't learn anything. Here you learn You understand the complexities of a very, very complex industry being the television industry. And then you get to learn about how wrestling fits into that very complex world. And you you walk away from an 83 Weeks podcast knowing that you understand more after each episode than you had ever understood before you listened. And that's one of the things I'm so proud of. God, my arm hurts. Putting myself over like that and putting you over like that is really fucking painful. Only because my arms, I just don't have the reach that I used to have. Oh. No, I mean, I I see the download charts. I think your reach is bigger than ever. I got to tell you, it sure was nice seeing the teams back out on the gridiron this past weekend. Luckily for us, that was just week one. And there's no better place to get in on all the action thanks to DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. To add to this week's excitement, DraftKings has millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs. Millions! And if you haven't tried DraftKings yet, you need to head to the App Store right now because you don't want to miss this. You draft your lineup now and feel the sweat like never before. Every snap, every run, every pass, every catch, it means more with DraftKings. It's simple. Just pick up your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching the game quite like having a shot at millions of dollars in prizes. DraftKings has paid out billions of dollars to winners since 2012, so they know a thing or two about cold, hard cash. Download the DraftKings app right now and use promo code 83weeks. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes this week. Don't miss out on week two action. Enter 83 weeks to get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes with your first deposit. That's code 83 weeks only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. We thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. Uh, Let's talk about pay-per-view. The the buy rates are in for UFC three. They're going to do about 150,000 buys which is more than, well, every WCW show this year, except for Hogan and Flair at the Bash of the Beach. And this is really with no big stars headlining for that promotion and really no major promotion. UFC was still very much an underground thing. At the time, <laughs> we had Hoist Gracie taking on Ken Shamrock, but those guys aren't exactly household names here. And even Meltzer is speculating in The Observer, hey, is this a work or is this a shoot? So obviously we know the UFC is going to go on to become a, a juggernaut, uh, but that's still years away. And you had a martial arts background. What were you thinking of UFC as they started to ease into the pay-per-view game here? Oh, fuck. That's going to get me heat. That's going to get me heat, but I'm going to go with it. Cause that's what I do. 
I hated it. Really? When it started. I hated it. it, it, it and I, I watched it, and I and I didn't hate the pres- presentation of it. I hate what they were trying to make it represent. In in other words, you know, these are the you know the toughest you know martial artists in the world. You know, they come from all these different martial arts backgrounds. That was the theory, right? That was the promotion. That was the angle. That was the pitch. And seventy percent of the guys were just fucking tough men. Right. They were like bouncers. They had no martial arts skills. I would listen to these people being introduced. He said, ninth degree black belt in pit fighting. What the fuck is that? Right. Come on. It's a gimmick. It's the whole thing. And look, I'm not taking, I'm not saying the guys weren't tough. I'm not saying that they weren't some of the probably, you know, street toughest people on the planet, but they weren't martial artists. Right. Now that came later. And, and as time went on that, that, that evolved. And now I love UFC. I enjoy watching it because these are legitimately trained athletes. Many of whom have been training in their disciplines since they were five years old. Right. You, know, you look at somebody that's got an NCAA wrestling background, you know, or, or an Olympic wrestling background, they didn't start wrestling they didn't pick it up in the 11th grade. They've been doing this shit since they were five. They, most of them were wrestling, you know, before they were riding bikes with training wheels and, and the same holds true with, with martial artists, legitimate martial artists. I'm not talking about, you know, street corner, Taekwondo, $35 a month for 18 months and you get a black belt karate school. There's a lot of those around, unfortunately. Um, but when you find really, really seriously well-trained martial artists that, that, that train with legitimate uh, instructors and under legitimate guidance, that's a whole different world. And when you reach the, the top of that sport or endeavor, um, you, you have some seriously, seriously good skills. And, and not because you're such a super athlete or anything else, but you've been, you've thrown thousands and thousands of kicks and punches. You've been in thousands of, of simulated fights. Some at a very easy pace, low pace, slow pace where you're learning things and other times full out, like lock the doors, turn the lights off, make sure nobody can see inside because we're going to go at it kind of thing. But you've had hundreds, if not thousands of those types of of, of situations while you were training and you did it for fun. Now, now you are a trained martial artist, but when you get people off the street or just big, it's like early UFC, you know, tank Abbott, Tank Abbott wasn't a martial artist, right? He's just a fucking tough guy, a real tough guy with a lot of charisma, but he wasn't a trained martial artist. Right. And because they used to present, UFC presented itself as representing, you know, these various martial arts. And it was all a gag. It was a joke. Um, from my perspective as a martial and an amateur wrestler, I wrestled again, I'm not putting myself over, but I, I, I not only wrestled in starting in junior high, um, in high school and in college, but I wrestled, I wrestled on the U S AAU freestyle team when the U S wrestled against Sweden back in 1974, which is no big fucking deal except for it's a completely different style of wrestling. And it's, it's a higher level than, than amateur wrestling in a lot of respects. Same. I used to record Roman. I used to compete in Greco Roman wrestling uh, for the AAU in Minnesota. That's an entirely different 
you know, wrestling skill set. And it, I was never any good at any of it, but I, 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 I was, I was on a good day. I was pretty average, but I loved it. And just because of my exposure to it, I had a little bit better understanding than just a consumer or a viewer. And I could recognize, you know, skill when you saw it versus just brute strength and tough guy shit. Not that I minded the tough guy shit. It is what it is, but don't call it martial arts. Please don't do that because you're insulting a lot of people who really are good at it. And then now we see what we're seeing today with, with the Gracies is when they introduced jujitsu and then that brought in a, another level of technical skill and ability and legitimate training and athleticism skills. And they've just been building upon that. Now I enjoy watching it. I, I really enjoy watching it, but back in the day, not so much. You're talking about fucking gag me. It was just like watching bar fights. Those are fun too. A lot of people love to watch bar fights. You ever been in a bar when a bar fight breaks out? Does anybody turn around and look away? Fuck no. No. They all stand on their chairs trying to get a better view. These days they pull out their cell phone and yell, World Star. Start recording. (laughs) That's true though. And by the way, this is going to be off fucking topic, but it's kind of a source of just attention. We'll put it that way. It gets a lot of my attention. I don't spend much time on Facebook. Right. In fact, the only thing I do really on Facebook, it's just friends, close family or close family, excuse me, close friends and family. Um, you and and I aren't even friends. Like I'm a big fan of dog shit, right? Not dog shit, but dog things. (laughs) And this whole Colonel Parker thing at the top has just got me just flustered. But I, you know, I go to Facebook and somehow or another, maybe because I like an asshole, I clipped on one of these videos one time, just I don't know, in some mindless state of not knowing what else to look at. And now I get, every time I go to Facebook, it's probably one of the reasons I don't go too often. Every time I go to Facebook, I get these wacky fucking videos of street fights that break out. Oh, wow. I have never seen so many videos of horrible, horrible fighters in my life. People are getting into street fights that should not get into a street fight. And they think they're good at it. Yeah. They dance and they got the fuck, they got the, they got the posture, they got the pose, you know, they got it all. And then they, (laughs) and I see these people throwing punches and doing shit that is just, yeah, it was horrible. Throwing kicks that you couldn't win a green belt with at a local YMCA, if you will. Well, let's talk about, uh, I said to throw that call back in there for some reason. Missy Hyatt is on the Sally, Jesse Raphael show (laughs) on September 14th. Boy, that's a throwback. Uh, Meltzer would remark that it it appeared to be a work. She's going to play a woman being mistreated by her boyfriend. Does does anybody have to go through the office if they're going to take a gig on TV like this, or is this just below the radar? I can't imagine that dusty was in the office trying to fire up turn on Sally, Jesse, baby. I don't, I don't see that happening. Trying to imagine how that would have happened. Keep in mind, I, I I wasn't involved in this end of the business in '94. I eh, no, I might have been not in the creative side. I would not have been involved in the creative. That was that was your father-in-law, uh, Rick Flair, and his team. So, in terms of where the idea came from, I, I can't with any credibility or legitimacy 
that our audience deserves because of the nature of who they are and what this show is about. I can't with any credibility or legitimacy tell you where the idea came from. That would be a, a Ric Flair conversation if he, if he could even remember because it was a while ago. But I would suggest to you my best estimation is that a Sharon Sadello, for example, mm. or whoever was kind of out there in marketing, in a marketing capacity or a PR capacity. It could have been either of those people, department heads, that would have had the opportunity to book somebody on Sally, Sally Jesse Raphael. More often than not, shows like that have bookers. Um, and the, the term actually applies there because all they do is book talent. They don't do any creative or anything like that. They just arrange for talent to come on television with, with their host. More often than not, people would reach out to us and say, Hey, you know, got some interest in WCW and, you know, we'd like to have somebody on and have you got anything that we could talk about? And then that would start a dialogue, something like that. That would start a dialogue. So my guess is. The opportunity came through either marketing or public relations, then filtered up to Dusty and there would have been – and his team. And then there would have been some conversation around it as to what they could do. Not, not too differently than what happened with myself and Jay Leno and NBC, only at a little different level. But that, that's probably what happened. And somebody said, oh, we got a chance to get somebody on Sally Jesse. Let's throw Missy out there and give her a story. Be my guess. Let's talk about the UWFI. The uh, observer is going to report the UWFI attempted to sign an exclusive talent agreement with WCW. And when new Japan got wind of it, they offered more money for a similar deal. From what I've been told, even though there is nobody in WCW, that means a great deal in new Japan, new Japan doesn't want UWFI elevated to a serious level with traditional fans by signing a deal with a company that has Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. And it's more of a pride thing than a business thing here where new Japan doesn't want to lose its status that it has in Japan of being the number one group in the world. This is interesting because, you know, I don't remember you and I ever talking about you having some sort of flirtations with UWFI. That's because it's not true. I'm not, I'm at a crossroads Conrad. I'm, I'm at, and there comes a time I think in a matter where you are in life, whatever your job is, there comes a point in time where you, you, you hit an intersection and you see that stop sign coming and you know, when you get to that intersection, you're going to have to make a decision. You turn around go back to where you came from. You take a left. Hopefully it'll get you where you want to go faster. Maybe, maybe not. You take a right, might be prettier. might be a more scenic drive. Might be a little faster or you just go straight ahead and keep doing what you're doing and have the confidence in yourself that it's the right thing. I'm not at that stop sign yet, Conrad, but I see it. It's on the horizon. And the way I respond here, I don't want it to influence the decision I'm going to make when I finally get to that intersection. I finally have to come to a full stop and I actually have to make a decision about how I'm going to continue to, to comment on Dave Meltzer writings, reporting, whatever stupid shit he says. And I'm going to try really hard here to not do something that forces me 
to fucking put the pedal to the metal and make that decision right now. Cause that's what my, that's what my gut tells me. That's what my nature, that's what my instinct is compelling me to do, but I'm going to be a better person and restrain myself and just say, how would Dave Meltzer know that New Japan might be offering more money, but it's just an ego thing. How would he know that? Right. He said it, he put it out there as fact. He didn't say, in my opinion, this might be the case. Right. Or from where I sit, maybe New Japan is thinking this. That would have been entirely acceptable to me. Even today, I would have said, okay, well, that's his observation. Could I can understand why he may have felt that way, but it's absent any reality or fact. That wouldn't bother me. And this is this is the point. This is where I, this is how I see that fucking stop sign. It's getting closer. This is the point I want to make here: is everything that you just read to me that Dave Meltzer had put out there as fact is nothing more than a figment of his imagination. And the fact that he puts it out there as fact is that's where he crosses the line. Everything you just read me is nothing but bullshit. I never had a conversation with UWI never in history, not a phone call, not a fucking postcard, okay. not an email. All right. Nothing. Okay. Nothing. But in, but in Dave's mind, I had this, we were negotiating. There was a potential deal, deal going on. By the way, how many times did I go to Japan in 1994 and who was I with? Ah. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to go back and look at my passport expired as it may be, but I keep them. I had already been engaged with new Japan, right? That was already a big part of my plan. I had already developed relationships that we've talked about this in the past. I won't go into it again because you can find this information in the archives, but by God, it was one of the first things that I did was try to resurrect the relationship between new Japan and WCW. And I was using personal relationships like Brad Ringens, who I had known through high school, who was one of the key, uh, advisors, if you were consultants working with new Japan to get a foothold with American based talent. Why would I have been doing all that if in Dave Elsmer at Dave Musser's world, I was negotiating with UWI? Right. Was I playing one against the other in Dave's mind? First of all, I've never done that in my fucking life, and I never will. If I have to reduce myself to to playing one opportunity against the other, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. Now I'll, I'll, I'll take advantage of interest, but I'll be honest with everybody in the process. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything subversive or manipulative, or I'll, I put my shit on the table and, and be as honest with, because you want to maintain relationships. You want to be able to go back to those people. You want to be able to look people in the eye and do business with them. So Dave's, Dave's whole premise of what he put out there to, to people who spend money every month, hoping that they're going to gain some real legitimate insight into an industry that they really like and, and are, 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 are interested in. And these poor people subscribe, they spend hard earned money and it's not even the money. It's not even the money. It's, it's what hurts me is that there are people walking around out there 
that think they have knowledge that they don't have because they got it from Dave Meltzer. And it's all wrong. The majority of it. Much of it. Some of it. Take your pick. But it's it's statements like that 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 reveal to me, and I hope reveal to others, that whether it's Meltzer or anybody else, just because you read it, it ain't true. It doesn't make it true. If you really want to know what was going on, just take the time. Right. Read a little bit. Listen to some different opinions. Search. Research. This shit's all out there, brother. Right. You can find anything you want to find if you really want to know. But just because you read it in a dirt sheet, especially Meltzer's, don't necessarily think it's true because it's not. All right, boys and girls, it's time for us to talk about something Eric and I really, really love, our pets. Uh, I'm a big dog guy. I've got two dogs here, Ginger and Baby. No, I didn't. Uh, these aren't my animals. I inherited them from my wife. But I love them just the same. And, man, your dog, Nikki, is like a superstar. You posted a picture the other day of your dog checking the freaking mail, and I showed Megan the picture, and she said, that's not a real picture. I said, no, that's where Eric lives. And she's like, when can we go to Eric's house? Uh, <laughs> the dog makes the photo, and the, the the landscape, I mean, this is such a big part of your life, Nikki, and your relationship. Fair to say? It is. And, and you're right. By the way, Mrs. B took that picture while I was out of town uh, earlier this week. So I can't even take credit for taking that picture. Um, but yeah, you know, my dog, Nikki, she's a, she's a star. Um, probably more people follow me on social media because of my dog than because of me, which is cool. But yeah, she's a big, kidding aside, she's a really big part. My dog is with me 24 seven, you know, when I'm home. Um, she, she just won't leave my side. She'd follow me in the shower if I would let her. And the relationship I have with this dog, and I've had some great dogs in my life, don't get me wrong, some really great dogs, but for whatever reason, the relationship I have with this dog is like, it's different and at a much higher level than any relationship I've ever had with a dog. She is so much like a person and a member of this family, it's, I can't say it enough. But, and, and you know, Conrad, you've been around Mrs. B and I long enough now, you know her pretty well. We're, we're into nutrition. We're into, and again, I'm 65 years old. I want to be around. I want to be, not just be around. I don't want to just be around. I want to be active. I mean, I'd like to be riding horses 20 years from now. And it's possible if you do the right things and you take care of yourself. And, the, you know, the older you get, the more you have to pay attention to those things because you can get away with things when you're in your 20s, your teens, certainly in your 20s and even your 30s. Your body will kind of forgive a lot of stupid shit. But as you get older, the cumulative effect of some of that stupid shit starts to manifest and starts showing up in ways that you didn't anticipate when you were in your teens and your 20s and your 30s. Well, the same thing is true with dogs. Only dogs is a dog's lifespan is accelerated by a multiple of seven years. You know, it's dog years, as they say. So if you've got a dog, you know, my dog, Nikki, you know, for her, she's an Australian cattle dog is, is her breed. Typically, they have a lifespan of yeah, 14 to 16 years. Maybe a little older sometimes, maybe a little less, unfortunately, sometimes. So if that's their lifespan, it's important to me, knowing what I know now, um, to do the things, including feeding my dog properly at her, you know, she's three now, and I've been feeding her very carefully, and I've been very selective about what I feed my dog, because dog food, pet food, but dog food in particular in this conversation, much like human food, Man, if you're not careful what you eat, you don't know what you're putting in your mouth. You don't know how how 
non-nutritious. 80% of the food that we eat as humans is for you. And yeah, you get a lot of calories and it makes you feel good. And it may even taste good, but nutritionally for, especially now, you know, COVID, you know, immune systems, everybody's talking about underlying conditions. What are some of those underlying conditions in humans? Diabetes, self-inflicted, overweight, self-inflicted, heart issues, mostly self-inflicted. Um, so many, you know, COPD, self-inflicted emphysema self-inflicted so many of the diseases and the conditions we have today were number one self-inflicted but number two exacerbated by the fact that we don't take care of ourselves because we don't we don't allow ourselves to 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 take advantage of the nutrients available to us because we eat garbage food well if you think it's bad for humans you have no idea how bad it is for pets because there's very little control over what goes into pet food you don't know and we become victims of marketing and advertising and it looks good gosh it looks just like hamburger it must be good for you it's not necessarily so i spent a lot of time doing the research looking into the products and solid gold is a great great product i feed it to my dog my dog loves it but i've spent a lot of time looking at the ingredients and doing the research of solid gold food the probiotics all of the things that it has in it that allows a dog's digestive system to not only function properly but get the maximum amount of nutrients out of the food that they do eat so I, I can't recommend it strongly enough. If you love your pet like I do and like Conrad does, if you care about nutrition for your pet, if you want your pet to not only live a long life, but a long active life, then please, please, I beg of you, take the time to do the research, read about solid gold and all the things it has to offer. And I think you'll probably feel as strongly about it as I do. And did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts that immune system and overall wellness of our pets. Solid Gold is the world's first holistic pet food company in America. Started back in 1974 by Sissy McGill. She really was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted this male-dominated industry. But she created a natural pet food here before it was cool. And she was inspired by the fact that European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes lived longer than their American counterparts. And her first recipe has helped provide quality nutrition and digestive health for more than 20 generations of dogs. So we're talking about for more than 45 years, they really have revolutionized this holistic pet food category. And now they've got a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including whole grain and grain free, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human grade bone broth for dogs. This is all from solid gold, by the way. And these solid gold foods are different because they cleanse your digestive system with the whole superfoods balanced with living probiotics and fueled with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, all supporting gut health and nourishing your pet both inside and out. But right now, because you listen to this show, you can go see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week at solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. Seriously, if you love your dog, go check out solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks to see the deal of the week. Remember, that's solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks.
Well, let's, uh, let's talk about a European tour and then we'll get into the pay-per-view in the weeks prior to this pay-per-view, there's going to be a European tour from WCW, which is a big deal. Uh, Meltzer would write Hulk Hogan, not selling an injury since the clash is yet to air, uh, continues to leg drop Ric Flair, who is not suspended every night in the main events, live reports that have been turned in say the shows have been all good with the exception of the matches that Jim Duggan and DDP had, which were at the very least average. The Hogan flair matches have been reported as being in the three and a quarter star range with the only complaint being that they've been too short. Although Hogan is loudly cheered, there are strong contingents in most cities booing him heavily at about a 75, 25 breakdown. Now this is worth mentioning. I guess we know that we're just shy of two years away from Hulk Hogan becoming a big, uh, a big, bad guy, the biggest bad guy, maybe in the history of wrestling, but the fans, you know, they're still with him because, and that's evidenced by the incredible buy rate that happened at the bash of the beach show. Go out of your way to listen to that, by the way, we're going to reference it a lot here today, but bash at the beach 94, I think is one of the more important WCW shows in history. And we've covered it in long form in the archives over at 83 weeks.com. Or of course you can find it on YouTube. But here the fans are not, it's not 100% behind Hogan. And some of that maybe is they've grown sort of the act has grown stale with them. Maybe they've outgrown it, but a bigger portion of it is probably just, Hey, he's one of them. Flair's our guy. We're not going to cheer Hulk Hogan against our guy. Don't you think that's probably a little bit of it? I think it was a lot of it. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that there were a, there was a segment of the fans that were booing Hulk, not only because he was their guy versus our guy, but I I think there was a genuine kind of blowback from the whole steroid thing. Um, I mean, that, that, that didn't come without a cost, right? It, it obviously it hurt WWF at the time and Vince, uh, and it, it, it took a big chunk out of Hulk too. I think, so I, I think it is definitely fair to say that there was a percentage of the audience that was just like angry because of the whole steroid thing and, and the disillusionment, that was probably a better way to say it. They weren't angry. Right. They were angry at being disillusioned. And so you got a percentage of that, you know, negative heel reaction was part of that. Now, how much, I don't know, man. I don't know how anybody could really do a good job saying, well, 40% of the people that were booing Hulk Hogan. Right. I mean, Dave would try to say that and, and make it sound like he did research to back it up. Not that he would, but he'd make it sound like he did. Um, I don't know, you know, half. No, I don't think it was half quarter. Mm, I could understand that intellectually I could absorb that and go, yeah, maybe, but I think a largest portion was, as you pointed out, because it was their guy versus our guy. And by the way, that was one of the things I was most excited about because that's a storytelling opportunity, right? I mean, that's fuck. Give me that all day long, you know? Um, so, but, but yeah, it was definitely true. There was, there was a certain portion of the audience that was our guy versus their guy. And there was a portion of that audience. that was just like, fuck you steroid trial, blah, 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 blah. And, and there was some residual heat there. No doubt about it. Let's, uh, let's get to the pay-per-view here. We are, we got Johnny B bad working with Steve Regal. It feels like 
Well, Johnny Bad opened every pay-per-view that ever happened for WCW. It certainly feels that way sometimes. Um, Bad had opened Spring Stampede, Slamboree, and Bash at the Beach, the last three shows. So this is going to be the fourth one in the row. By the way, Halloween Havoc, that's going to be also opened with Johnny B. Bad. The streak would finally be broken at Starcade. He's going to be in the second match. But this became formulaic why was johnny b bad always the guy to go get you started i mean we know once upon a time with nitro and that formula that we had there we're going to start with the cruiserweights and we're going to see a lot of high-flying lucha action but a little before that johnny b bad was your guy all the time why is that um again i didn't format the show not that i just want to make that clear as we go through this because there's certain things that i can't speak to as to why because i didn't make the decisions why would i have been comfortable with that i'll i'll speak to that you know johnny brought a lot of energy you know when you kick off it's traditionally and i got to be careful with traditionally because there's always so many different exceptions along the way but traditionally you would want your show to open up with his the crowd's already excited they're there they're anticipating. They're already preconditioned to be excited about something. Whatever it is, once the lights go on and the firecrackers go off and the music gets pumped in, people are preconditioned to react. And and they do. They, they, they spent money to get there. They had to drive to the building. They've been looking forward to it all week or twenty since the last 20 minutes when they picked up their free ticket at a Domino's Pizza, whatever. But they're there and they're ready to party. And I think throwing somebody out like Johnny B. Bad, throwing somebody out, putting somebody out there like Johnny B. Bad and Steven Regal, you know, Regal was a great heel, um, had the ability to just get heat. Johnny B. Bad was kind of like a Pavlovian baby face, meaning he came to the ring with so much energy and color and blah that people would generally react positive, positively in a kind of Pavlov's dog state of mind, meaning they know they're supposed to cheer, so they're going to cheer. Because, God, maybe the camera's going to see me. Yay, this is fun. So you could kind of artificially, without necessarily having the greatest match in the world, not that this wasn't a great match, but your opening match typically would be something where you could maybe put out a match that you wouldn't put on the semi-main event or even halfway through the show. But what you all you really want to do is satisfy that immediate need for, for, for gratification with the audience, whether they're at home or whether they're in the arena. Just give them something that they could get excited about and Johnny B bad was somebody that you could get excited about regardless of the story, regardless of his opponent, the presentation and the energy alone would generally let you get through that with a, in, in a very positive way, set the tone for the rest of the pay-per-view without necessarily having to put one of your top names in an opening match. Right. Well, he's out here with Steve Regal. Meltzer would uh, say some good wrestling early with a lot of, uh, different stuff than the usual variety of spots. Bad even used an airplane spin early. He does a tope, which the camera missed completely and bad missed a crossbody and caught his throat on the ropes. Sir William choked him with a cane. It slowed down in seven minutes and 30 seconds with Regal riding Johnny be bad and bad making intermittent comebacks. The two do some near falls based around Sir William's interference backfiring before bad finally gets the pin with a backslide. Regal is said to be leaving to go to new Japan and his planned feud with Jim Duggan has been dropped two and a half stars. First of all, what'd you think of, uh, this powder wig that 
that Regal was rocking and how phenomenal was the shape that and condition that Johnny B. Bad was in when he comes out and first like spreads his cape, dude, you're getting a little showcase of the abs there. Mero was in maybe the, his prime here physically. I think so. I think so. He looked really good. And Rigo, you know, like I said earlier, as we started talking about this, Rigo is so good at getting heat, or he was, uh, and still is as a GM over at NXT. Um, he's so good at getting heat. And Regal, when, when he was in the right frame of mind, um, could make he was a little he had a little Ric Flair in him in the sense that he could really make somebody that was marginal look good and somebody that was look that was good look great. So in I know this isn't like a big you know opening match holy shit kind of moment uh, off the charts. Certainly not what we evolved into with the Luchadors and guys like Ray and and Eddie and Chris and Dean and so forth. Um, back when we used them to open up pay per views, but. Regal could make anybody look good if he was in the right frame of mind. He had good chemistry with Johnny. Johnny was in the t- top shape of his life. He re- he really was. Let's and Johnny uh, and John, again. Johnny B. Bad was a Dusty Rhodes, yeah, protege. I mean, that was a Dusty creation from the ground up. Dusty really really liked Johnny B. Bad and. and felt strongly about his ability, you know, to become a star, which is probably another reason he was on all these pay-per-views. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Woo! Savewithconrad.com just helped a family just like yours secure an interest rate in the twos. For a mortgage, you're overpaying right now if you're in a 30-year loan or if you have an interest rate in the threes, fours, fives, sixes. What are you waiting for? Keep more of your own money before it's too late. Just last week, the experts started to advise that we might be on borrowed time with these interest rates. Take advantage of these rates while we've still got them and find out how much money you can save for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Yeah, I mean, certainly he was one of Dusty's favorites, but I mean, he looked phenomenal here and he's going to win the TV title. You know, they're got, they got big things planned for him. Steve Regal, of course, is a, a badass, but we know that Johnny B. Bad is uh, going to be a big star too. Next up, we've got Kevin Sullivan and Cactus Jack. This is a loser leaves WCW match. Six minutes and eight seconds is what they get here. Meltzer would write, although Cactus turned heel on television, he got a tremendous face reaction live and played to the crowd in his last night in Sullivan got the heel reaction. Jack took several great bumps and the most memorable of which was him being on the middle rope, ready to do the elbow to the floor. Dave Sullivan stopped him and Kevin Sullivan got up and body slammed Jack off the middle rope to the concrete floor. And Dave stopped Cactus from using a chair, but also he stopped Kevin from using one. Sullivan's going to attack Jack's ear and Tony Schiavone gets this over by explaining how beforehand all the nerves in the ear were exposed. So it has to be more painful. Finally, (laughs) Cactus charges at Kevin who moves, he hits Dave and then Kevin pins him real fast. Two and a quarter stars, some, some brutal bumps here, including that back body drop right onto the concrete. It's a, a bad day at the office for cactus, but I guess this is his swan song. What do you remember about him wanting to explore other options? Oh, generally speaking, Mick was, and we had a couple of these conversations. Mick was 92, 93, early 94. Mick was doing and wanted to do a lot of things 
as a part of his matches that were just too dangerous. He was throwing them, I mean, coming off balconies onto the concrete floor below him. And I mean, just the stuff he was doing was dangerous for him. But Mick had a different attitude about things back then. He had a a vision of of the character that he wanted to be. And and we saw some of that manifest in WWE, Hell in a Cell, coming off the top of the game. I mean, that's how Mick wanted to get himself over, by doing those incredibly extreme, obviously very dangerous types of things. And in 1994, I was, again, keep in mind, we're going to go back into the context of King Machine here just a little bit. you got to understand where WCW was from a business point of view, not not revenue-wise, but internally. The reason that I was put in the position I was put in is because all of the management, top management ahead of me, including most of the creative, had really failed to find a way to make WCW turn a profit or to at least pay for itself. That was one reason. But I think the reason it overshadowed all of that was just the litigation and the internal dysfunction and, and, and the issues, the personnel issues that were, that were taking place, not, not in the locker room that Dave Meltzer and others like to speculate and pretend that they knew what was going on. In some cases they had some insight. In most cases they didn't, not that world. I'm talking about the world inside of the the 14th floor over at CNN Center or 15th floor, whatever the fuck it was. That's where we were having a lot of issues. And one of the issues was risk management. You know, we had to really look at what we were doing in house shows because we were having fans, you know, getting hurt. Sometimes it was due to the fault of their own. Sometimes it was questionable because of things that were going on outside of the ring and things that were happening as a part of a match. And when fans start getting injured, the first thing they do is dial an attorney. And we didn't, we wanted to kind of get a handle on that. There was no, there was no policy. There was no protocol in place. When I took over, it was just, yeah, let's just see what works tonight. And if we get sued, we get sued. So between Mick's desire to take things even further than we had ever taken them in WCW before, in some cases. And WCW's desire to tone some of that extraneous activity down, the high-risk type things down, so that we didn't A, have talent getting hurt, and B, didn't expose ourselves to litigation in in venues, we were starting to control things. I was being asked, no, I was being told to minimize some of these legal risks that, that we continued to engage in over years and years and years prior to this. So when I went to Mick and, you know, he wanted to do certain things and I said, man, we can't do that. You know, it's not the character, whatever. Here's why we can't do that. Mick was getting increasingly frustrated because he felt that what he needed to do to get himself over, we weren't going to allow him to do. I'm, I, and I, I'm giving you my impression. Mick may feel completely differently and I would respect, obviously, I'm not going to try to suggest I know what was going on inside of Mick's head at this point, unlike others. I have no idea what was going on in his head. Don't pretend to – I do. I, I can I can only relate some of the conversations that I had with Mick relative to this situation. And I think Mick – and maybe it was – maybe there were other things on top of it too. I'm sure there were. But Mick felt like it was time for him to go. And, and I didn't want Mick to go. I wanted him to stay. But I – 
I also knew that it wasn't going to work because Mick was pretty determined as to how he wanted to get himself over and the things that he wanted to do. And I think he understood that that wasn't going to happen in WCW. So I was disappointed to see Mick go. I was even more disappointed in watching this match to know that that was his last match in WCW. I had a hard time watching it. No offense to Kevin Sullivan. Love Kevin. He's a good friend. I was just on his podcast. It's going to air this week, actually, coming up. Um, so this is not a personal thing. But, you know, there were things that Kevin was good at and bumping wasn't one of them. Uh, you know, giving someone maybe, but taking them, uh, it, it, there were so many awkward, unbelievable, just brutal from a technical point of view bumps in this match prior to the good stuff that by the time the good stuff got there, I, I, they'd lost me. It was just, it was hard for me to watch it. It was just brutal for the sake of being brutal. Kevin was not great at selling. Just it is what it is, Kev. I love you like, like you're one of my best friends. But right, the selling wasn't there, so it, it just it was hard to watch. You know what's what's interesting too is, I mean, I think you know, and I could have some of this wrong. I probably should have cracked open his first book, but he t- he wrote about this, and I think the gist was he just felt like he had done all he could do within WCW, and he felt like you guys saw him in a certain way. And there was really nothing he could do to really change the way you guys saw him. Um, I, I, I wish if he had one last match and he really got to pick exactly what that was and who it was against and all that jazz, that it could have been against sting. I know that sounds silly, but I just think cactus Jack and sting and certainly cactus Jack and Vader, my goodness, he had some real spectacles in WCW. No, and I, you know, if, if you had that ability to kind of wave a magic wand and make everything different and go back and relive it again, right? It, had had Sting not been, you know, so close to Vader, um, that I mean, look, Sting and Cactus Jack, absolutely, it's happened before. We've seen it. It was awesome. McFoley and 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 Vader <laughs> all day long, but it just wasn't the story, right? And and unfortunately, because everybody knew that. Jack was leaving, it didn't make a lot of sense to put him in a huge high profile story, knowing that come Monday morning, he's gone. Right. But you're right, it would have been a great match. And I, I did. This is my first re- my note to myself here is feel bad. Meaning I feel I really felt bad that because Mick did a lot of great things in WCW. You know, they, they happened at a time when WCW wasn't really on anybody's radar in a big way, right. like they were in 95, 96, 97, and so forth. But prior to that time, Mick did a lot of great things in WCW that, you know, he people that are real big fans of, of Mick's will know about and talk about. But, you know, he certainly didn't get the send-off that he, I wish he would have had. I don't know that we've ever talked about this before, but I grew up with parents who smoked. And as a result, I absolutely hated cigarette smoke, but I saw firsthand how hard it could be to quit. I get it. Lucy nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. We should mention that this was researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has gone out and created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. 
Lucy also has a lodgings with four milligrams of nicotine in their cherry ice flavor. So here's the deal. Each and every flavor actually tastes great, but it's convenient and it's discreet. These products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights, at work, on the go, hell, even at the gym. And this is something that has been a game changer for someone in my life. I won't add them here on the show, <clears throat> but he's been trying to give up smoking for a long time. And we had a long conversation because believe it or not, my wife once upon a time was a smoker, but he needs a little help. It's harder for him than he imagined. And I get that. So my parents struggle with it. He's tried Lucy. Hasn't looked back. If you've tried this, I'm telling you. There's no looking back. Now he loves the cinnamon and I've been told the wintergreen is pretty legit, but what I'd like for you to do is just try it. If you're a smoker and you're serious about taking better control of your health, saving some money and you know, not stinking, this doesn't get any easier. It's 2020. Get rid of the cigarettes, unplug your stupid vape, throw out your dip. Get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple. You don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down and 83 weeks. Listeners can go to lucy.co and use promo code 83 weeks to get 20% off all their products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code 83 weeks at checkout. And I also have to give this disclaimer warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, which you already knew that, or you would have already quit smoking. Lucy.co is the place to be and make sure you use that promo code 83 weeks. Let's talk about the next match. It's supposed to be Ricky steamboat. Versus Steve Austin for the U S title, but steamboat comes out to announce that he has a legitimate back injury and can't wrestle. So Nick Bockwinkle, who is our authority figure, if you will, here for WCW just awards the United States championship to Steve Austin. And then Bockwinkle tells Austin, he has to defend the title right now. And Austin's trying to leave Meltzer is going to write figuring that since on paper, the best match on the show was canned. And they didn't have enough time to fill the show unless they had a decent length match here. I figured they'd throw in a guy like Brian Pillman. So they'd at least have a kick-ass match. Instead, they decided to get the pop by putting Jim Duggan out. And as Austin wanted to leave, Bachwinkle pushed him, Duggan backdrops him and splashes him in 35 seconds to win the title. After the match, Duggan does an interview and gets a big pop until he knocks Ric Flair at which the people started to boo him and he left with a flat reaction. He gives it a dud and, uh, it's even voted worst match on the card in a landslide. This is, uh, regrettable. I mean, in hindsight, <laughs> you've got the biggest star in the history of the business and he wasn't gonna... then though. Let's get, let's be smart. Let's be, let's be fair. He wasn't then I'm not he saying became... he was. Sure. Seven years later, or six years later, I don't know. What was it, 94? Yeah. Three years later, he was the biggest. 
Three but, years later, yeah. But at this, and and by the way, he he got there on his own. He wasn't the ringmaster in WWE. He became Stone Cold Steve Austin on his own. But that character in Steve Austin's mind, and I talked to him about this. We drank beers talking about this. I did his podcast where we talked about this. You can go back and listen to it in Steve's archives. You know, Steve didn't Steve didn't have a clear idea who his character was going to be. Right. You know, and, and until it happened. So we can say we go on to be the biggest star in the business. And here you got him doing a job for fucking Hacksaw Jim Duggan on the surface. That looks like pretty silly shit, admittedly. But put yourself now we're going back in time. You know, what was Dusty thinking at that time? I, I don't know. What what was you know what were the issues with Steve at that time? What was Steve comfortable doing or willing to do or excited about doing or not excited about doing or not willing to do and all that? There's a lot of things that go into it that aren't visible on the screen or or certainly in a newsletter. But you know I don't know. All I know is per Dave. Oh, we could have just dropped in a match with Flying Brighton. No, no story, no angle. Just throwing a match, hot shot it, hot shot it. Dave hates hot shots, but well, we could have hot shotted it. Could have, or you could try to build a story, right. or you could try to satisfy the audience and create some excitement, enthusiasm for the people at home that spent whatever they spent on this thing, nineteen ninety five or twenty nine ninety five or thirty four ninety five or whatever the hell it was at the time. You could have made them feel like, oh man, I wish I was really there live. That's what you do when you get pops. That's what you do when you get people standing and cheering. That's why you do it. You don't do it so you can teach them what a good wrestling match is from your point of view. Or just have a great match for the sake of a great match. Because 90% of the people out there don't care if it's a great match. They only care if they're entertained and they feel good. Only a small percentage of the people want to see a great match for the sake of a great match. Not taking anything away from that audience. If it's 10%, if it's 5%, if it's 20%, if it's 40%, I don't know. Nobody does. We're all guessing. We all think we know, but none of us do really know. Whether the audience out there, whether it was 1994 or whether it's 2020, are watching because they love the characters in the story or because they just want to see great matches. I, for one, believe that it's both, but by far and away, the massive audience the, the, the majority, the vast majority of the audience watches because they love the characters in a story. That's the feedback that I get, not on social media, but in, in the feedback that I've gotten in the past um, in, in research as recently as probably six years ago when we did focus groups for TNA. Um, that's, what I, that's what I know. Now, did this match have a story? Mm. Austin's situation did. Austin's reactions d helped advance a story or advance his character. W was it a great match? No. Did the audience react to it? Gee, I don't know. Go back and take a look at 44 minutes and 34 seconds, and you tell me whether it was just a hot shot or whether we made the audience happy. Were they glad they spent the money? Did they get an emotional reaction? And this is what people sometimes realize. People, I, my opinion only. No research. No, no studies. Nothing I can point to. Nothing I can put out there in social media so you could read how I arrived at this analysis. But people watch wrestling to be entertained, not to be educated. There you go. 
And as far as I'm concerned, the 44 minutes and 34 seconds on September 18, 1994, every mucker father in that arena was standing on their feet cheering and having a great time. And I'll give that four stars. Bam. So you're really going to say this was uh, good stuff and you enjoyed this. It was a good segment and the audience enjoyed it. Therefore I did. If the audience enjoys it, I enjoy it. You know, this isn't even the worst part of Austin's weekend. I think the day before it's in the observer that his house floods. So you talk about maybe the worst weekend in wrestling history. Yeah. You uh, win the U S title immediately lose it to Jim Duggan in 35 seconds and, uh, come home to a flooded house. Bad day. Look at it this way, Steve, um, Steve and I, you know, we've, we've had so many laughs over so many beers about all this crazy shit in the last five years or eight years longer than that. Now, I guess, God, time flies. It's really amazing. Um, but I can only imagine I would love to have a conversation with Steve just about the 24 hours leading up to and after this, <laughs> it, had, it would be a funny conversation. Yeah. That's going to be a bad day. Let's get to the next match. It's Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma. Pretty wonderful here. Taking on, uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell and the Patriot. Uh, this is for the tag titles and they get 12 minutes and 54 seconds. Meltzer would write, it was kind of weird to follow Duggan with these guys as they pretty well do the same gimmick. Blacktop bully was at ringside arguing with fans as they came to the ring and then got booted out by security match was okay. Highlights were Orndorff dumping the contents of an ice cooler on a bagwell, making him too cold bagwell and Roma <laughs> doing a great elbow drop off the top rope. Bagwell got worked on most of the way and made the tag, but the ref didn't see it. Bagwell was on the floor while Patriot cleaned house in the ring. Orndorff pile drove Bagwell on the floor while Patriot gave the full Nelson drop to Roma, but Romer covered Bagwell for the pin two and a quarter stars. We've talked a little bit about Paul Orndorff and certainly about Marcus Bagwell. Uh, I'm sure we'll spend more time on, on Paul Roma, but the Patriot here, it feels like there's an opportunity. I mean, we know a couple, what, three years from now, he's going to be headlining. Well, co-main event, co-main eventing with Bret Hart in the WWF, but he was here first. Why wasn't the Patriot, uh, more your speed? Why didn't that character catch on? Was it just the, uh, well, what's the word we use in wrestling? The demons at the time? No, I don't think it was that. I, I don't. I think the reason that, that Dell didn't really, uh, find a groove to take him to the next level in WCW is probably the same reason why he couldn't find that groove and find himself at the top consistently, uh, in WWE. Right. Dell was, Dell's a great guy, by the way, nothing I'm about to say it should indicate anything other than respect for Dell, but we have to be honest about the situation at the time. Dell had all of the, he had all the pieces except for one promo. He, he just, he wasn't good on the mic. Yeah. He wasn't good on the mic. And I've been thinking a lot about promos and the narrative, because really we, you know, we use terms in wrestling that are different than terms that exist in other forms of television entertainment. Promos is one, you know, bookers is another. 
you know, they're writers, they're producers, they're, you know, it's narrative. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's the elements of storytelling with regard to, to promos or narrative. It's the element of, of the presentation that allows you to advance a story or character. That's the reason you do a promo to advance a story or a character because the dialogue any story is going to need some dialogue or some narrative, some form of narrative. It can't just happen in the ring. It can manifest in the ring. We can see things physically happening that are a part of the overall narrative or story, but they're only a part. You can't complete the picture or complete the story or add the level of detail to that story to make it really compelling without a sufficient amount of narrative from the principles involved from the characters involved you just can't i don't care how freaking good your matches are if you can't talk likely not 100 percent of the time but likely you're never going to break through the middle of the card and and i've always believed that i believe it more now than ever i've been actually doing some research in terms of where has the audience gone this is going to, okay, we're going off into the weeds. Boom, hit the brakes, fuck, jump out of the car. I see a bunch of weeds. We're going to jump in. Here we go. I've said this before. Don't mean to be redundant, but context is king. Last October 14, 2019, SmackDown premieres on Fox. 3.4 some odd million viewers. Fucking awesome. Month later, they're down to 2.5 million, roughly. Where'd those million people go? Where'd they go? What are they doing today? How come they're not watching next Friday? Or the Friday after that? Or the Friday after that? This is pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. One million people showed up because they heard the restaurant was opening its doors. They came in, they ordered a meal, and they left and never came back. Right. I want to know why. If I'm Tony Khan, and I'm looking at my current situation. By the way, if I'm Tony Khan and I just broke a million viewers, I'd be pretty happy with my current situation in many respects. But overall, when I quit being happy about my current situation, I would sit back and go, hmm, when we premiered last October, we opened up with 1.41 million people. Now we're fighting tooth and nail to get to a million. And by the way, pre-COVID, we were averaging around 850 or nine. Where'd those 500,000 viewers go? How come they showed up on the premiere and they sampled it? They, 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 they stuck the head in the door. They may have ordered an appetizer if we're a restaurant. They may have even ordered a meal. And when they were done, they left and they never came back. I would really want to know that. We call them lapsed fans. But I think there's more than the million people that showed up at the SmackDown restaurant on October 14th, 2019, and decided to order a meal and left and never came back. And I think there's more than four or 500,000 viewers that went to the AEW restaurant, ordered an appetizer meal and left and never came back. I think there's way more than that 1.5 million people out there. I think there are millions of people out there, potentially, that used to really love professional wrestling because it was one of the first forms of real alternative entertainment in the television world. It wasn't sports. It wasn't comedy. It wasn't drama. It wasn't news. It wasn't any of the above, but it was all kind of a little bit of everything. It was real alternative television. 
somehow not only the million people from last October 14, 2019 at the SmackDown restaurant and the four or 500,000 people that went to the AEW restaurant, not only did those people show up, have a bite to eat, decided, nah, not for me, and went away and never came back. I think there are millions more just like them out there. The question is, where did they go and why? Why? The one question nobody ever asks about fucking anything, whether it's politics, whether it's biology, now biology is probably not a good example, whether it's politics, it's entertainment, whatever it is, why? Why did those people leave and where did they go? And I have a theory. And my theory I'm going to lay it all right here. I haven't, I haven't completed my research yet. I'm going to spend some time this week and I'm going to actually have some people help me do it to really illustrate this. But my guess right now is all it is, is a guess. Cause I don't have my data completed yet. My instinct tells me that that 18 to 49 year old demo that everybody talks so much about, because now it's out there in the trades. It's always been there. It's always been the key demo, by the way, but, now it's become more important because that's what people are writing about. That demo, where are they? If you look at the weekly ratings, if you look at you know, WWE's ratings, if you look at AEW's ratings, and you look at the breakdowns and the demos and the people watching all the stuff that's out there, it's in the public domain. Anybody can access it. You don't have to you know, go to a, a website to see it or you don't have to subscribe to somebody's dirt sheet to see it because it's all out there in the public domain. And if you look at where that audience is, my sense, not firm belief yet, is those people are watching the news. Right. Look at Tucker Carlson's 18 to 49. Look at CNN's 18 to 49. Look at MSNBC's and in prime time. Look at their 18 to 49. That was the wrestling audience. Where have they gone? They've gone to cable news. Why have they gone to cable news? Because cable news is now more like professional wrestling than professional wrestling used to be. The promos are fucking awesome. You got to, regardless of your political ideology or what you believe in or who you listen to or where you get your information from, it doesn't fucking matter. Fox, MSNBC, CNN, you name it, everybody does the same thing. They get up there and they fucking argue and they cut great promos on each other. It's great narrative. There's almost always somebody up there that you want to choke and there's almost always somebody up there that's saying what you believe in. So guess what? You have more emotion. You're investing more emotion watching cable fucking news than you are, than you get from watching wrestling because the promos are better. I firmly believe that. And I'm, uh, my instinct believes it and I'm working hard to back that up. But if this is true, it answers the question. Why do those people leave and never come back? And the answer, based upon my thesis or theory at this point, is that they're watching something that provides more entertainment for them because of the quality of the emotion that's created in news versus the quality of the emotion that's created in professional wrestling. They've actually flipped. I did a TED talk about two years ago in Chicago, outside of Chicago, a couple of years ago, where I talked about how the news is ripping off professional wrestling. Little did I know just how much I was right when I did that TED talk. Right. It's true. I would much rather watch the promos on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News than watch any promo on any wrestling program today. Now, there's going to be exceptions. 
there's going to be exceptions. I want to make that clear. I don't feel that way 100% across the board. But for the most part, the promos are better in news than they are in wrestling. And if I'm a producer, I'm figuring out a way to change that. Maybe a change of format, maybe a, a change in production style and technique. But man, this fucking backstage interviews with the fucking really camera and talent saying shit that they don't fucking understand, believe, or even ha remotely have the ability to convey in a way that solicits or elicits any kind of emotional response with the audience. That shit's gone. It doesn't exist for the most part. Not always. There are exceptions. But it shouldn't be an exception. It shouldn't. And that's I think that's where the audience has gone. Fucking cable news is more entertaining than professional wrestling. By the way. And uh, it's not going to be long until they start beating the shit out of each other, I guarantee you. <laughs> somebody's going to throw a punch. It may not happen this year or next year or the year after, but somebody's going to start swinging on one of these news shows. Mark my words. They're, they're escalating the emotion to that level. And they're doing it intentionally, by the way. I don't think these people all believe the shit that they're saying when they're on television. No, they're, they're working, brother. They're working. In fact, we saw the, I don't know if you saw this. I don't mean to get into politics or anything else. Like I'm not taking a side one way or the other. I'm just using this to illustrate my point. Did you, did you see the, 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 or hear the audio tape that was leaked between Chris Cuomo on CNN and uh, what was the, the uh, Trump's attorney's name at the time that's now in jail? Uh, Michael, whatever the fuck his name is. He's in jail right now. Cuomo is prepping, he's producing the guy he's about to argue with about Donald Trump. And you can listen to the whole thing. It reminded me of me laying out the prom, the NWO promo to Hulk Hogan at Bash at the Beach in 96, where we locked ourselves in a fucking janitor closet and we literally talked through the entire promo. I gave it to him. It was coming off the top of my head. He was giving it to me back. He was making his changes. I was making my changes. That's exactly what Chris Cuomo did with, with, with Michael, whatever oh, the fuck his Cohen. name is. What's his name? Cohen. Cohen? Ma Michael Cohen. Yeah. You can listen to it. You don't have to take my word for it. It's out there. You can listen to it. And that happens every – I don't think that's an exception. I don't think Chris Cuomo did anything that anybody else isn't doing. Right. I think they all do it. It's a, it's a gimmick. It's a fucking work. It's just silly, but it's more entertaining than wrestling in some respects. There you go. One of the things I enjoy most about our podcast is that it's all about nostalgia. It makes me think about, you know, being a kid and growing up as such a big wrestling fan and growing up cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, but most of us had to give it up when we realized it's full of sugar and junk that we really shouldn't be eating. But then when you realize, Hey, if I cut out all the carbs and the sugar, man, there, there's nothing I can even eat anymore, but you still need to eat breakfast, right? I mean, we've always heard it's the most important meal of the day. And that makes sense. You know, if you, if you start your, uh, your engine going the right way in the morning, you're going to be more productive at work. You're going to get more shit done, but how do we make this happen? Magic spoon, magic spoon is a sponsor of this podcast. And I got to tell you, we are a fan in the Thompson household. And here's why you're going to dig it. Zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in every serving. They've also got four really badass flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing. It almost feels too good to be true. It's keto friendly. It's gluten free. It's grain free. It's soy free. It's low carb and it's GMO free. Uh, I have absolutely fell in love, uh, with magic spoon. My wife is a big fan of fruity and, and you can probably guess what that tastes similar to. I'm a big fan of cocoa. Uh, 
Our daughter really likes blueberry. You're going to love it too. Find out which one you like the best. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks. Grab a variety pack and try them all today. Be sure to use that promo code 83 weeks at checkout. You're going to get free shipping for that. We should mention Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash 83 weeks and use the promo code 83 weeks for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. We believe in it. You will too. Try the cocoa, buddy. You're going to dig it. Magicspoon.com forward slash 83 weeks. By the way, the, que- my, the, question that, thesis. the question that got us down this road was, why wasn't Dale Wilkes a bigger star? I don't, I don't know. Cause he couldn't cut a promo. Oh no, I know. That's what I'm saying. We started talking <laughs> on promos and here we go. Let's, let's talk about the next situation here. We've got Hulk Hogan being mentioned and lots of booze from the live crowd. The triangle match is next, but we don't really know it's the triangle match. Uh, the two participants begin and wrestle the third who ends up being sting gets a buy. So Vader is going to pin guardian angel in seven minutes and four seconds to win the first triangular match. Meltzer would say the dreaded coin flip gave sting a buy. What a shock. They did a lot of big man spots. This was pretty slow for a Vader match, but in hindsight, one could see why with him having to work 30 minutes, one weird spot was angel coming off the top rope and clotheslining himself on the top rope, which looked really stupid. The finish saw angel do an enziguri and a body slam. Vader then clotheslined the ref and angel did the Bubba slam, but no ref to count the pin. Harley race then interferes and headbutts angel and Vader splashes him with a Vader bomb off the middle rope three quarters, or I'm sorry, star in three quarters. So we're talking about the guardian angel here. He is the uh, former Ray trailer, the former big Bubba. I guess he's still Ray trailer here, the former big boss man, but he's heavily referred to here as a man of law and order. Um, <laughs> We're trying to get over the fact that he's the big boss man on TV, but we can't use that because the WWF owns it. So we go with the guardian angel and in hindsight, maybe this looks a little silly, but context is King. We always say that here on the show, uh, guardian angel, this whole concept had started to get a lot of press, especially during daytime TV, uh, and some of the uh, evening news, it was like a feel good story. It was a positive message and I could see why WCW wanted to latch onto it. There is some quote unquote realism there and some decent little promos. What do you remember about this? I actually quite a bit. I, I was the one that came to dusty with the opportunity and said, Hey, what if we do this? You know, cause I, again, I, you know, I've always kind of stayed on top of current events since the time I was in eighth grade. I had a teacher by the name of Mrs. Fields, who was really, really good. She taught history and current events, and I love both. So like only the the only class I ever really did well in, other than German and physics, believe it or not. I love physics. Fucking hated math, but I love physics. So it created a conflict. But here nor there. Um, Curtis Sliwa who was the individual who's he kind of created the guardian angels and the guardian angels were created. You know, people again, don't remember, you know, New York city was a shithole back in the nineties. The, the crime was crazy. It was a dirty, filthy place. It was just drugs, prostitution, illegal activity. It was not the New York city that we knew pre COVID. Um, it was a dangerous place. And out of that environment, thank you, Mrs. B. Oh, she's looking so good. Oh, 
Oh my gosh. We're going to have to, we're going to have to speed this along. Uh, <laughs> I'll be there, honey. I'll be there. Um, Curtis Lewa created the guardian angels as kind of a, uh, a well-organized, um, um anti-violent, but, um, ready to help protect the average person on the street that wasn't able to either protect themselves or if there wasn't law enforcement around or whatever the case, I don't want to say they were vigilantes because that would make them sound like a horrible group of people, but they weren't, they were, they were just concerned people that grew up in their city and, and saw what was going on and, and rose up to kind of help mitigate it. Right. And, and courteously, what well, you're right, man, he was on the news all the time and the guardian angels were kind of a big deal yeah. at that time. And so I reached out to Curtis Lewa and was, you know, said, Curtis, this is a way that we could help promote you and the guardian angels. And, you know, he knew who boss man was obviously. And, you know, we were able to put that together and it, you know, the idea, you know, looking back on it now is kind of a cornball idea, but again, in the context of the times, I guess it may have had a chance of getting over, but it, it, it just didn't get over the way I think anybody wanted it to. And then eventually we started making Ray trailer more of a heel with that guardian angel gimmick, uh, eventually. But that was at least the reason why, which I always like to touch on. Why did we do it and how did we do it? But it, it didn't work out great. Admittedly. I actually liked, you know, the concept. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I don't like Ray trailer as anything other than big boss, man, but I totally understand. Hey man, this has got a little cachet in the mainstream. Let's try to tap into that. I just feel like I would have wanted someone other than boss man in that spot. I always wanted him to be uh, boss man. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match. We've got Vader working with sting here. 23 minutes and 18 seconds. The gist is whoever wins here gets a title shot at Hulk Hogan at Starcade. Which is kind of fun because, uh, well, everybody knows it's going to be Hulk Hogan. Um, Meltzer says this was weird because they first went to a 15 minute draw that lasted 1643, which is a little unusual. And then they did a five minute <laughs> overtime period, which lasts four minutes and 42 seconds. Finally, they had a second overtime period in which the match would end when the first man was knocked off his feet. Vader destroyed sting with punches and clotheslines, but sting wouldn't go down. Sting makes a comeback and then Angel runs to ringside and attacks Harley Race. Vader goes down, but the ref is occupied with Angel and Race. And then a masked man who was supposed to be the same masked man from The Clash ran from the back and knocked Sting's knee with an object. And Sting goes down. The ref sees it at 1 minute and 53 seconds and awards the match to Vader. The first 1643 segment was excellent, with the two doing all kinds of good spots and great drama. Although Vader totally carried the segment, which considering he'd already worked and weighs 400 pounds says something sting had the scorpion on at the bell and both guys looked really tired during the second segment segment, which was all too obvious by going the distance with the way they were working. Vader used the power bomb just before the bell to give him the advantage when they started the third period, three and three quarter stars. So a lot to unpack here. They did a, a, a great job trying to tell the story, but. All these overtimes, I don't know. When I watched it back, it, it took away. And it is kind of funny. Normally in, in wrestling, if we're going to say something went to a, a, a so-and-so draw, number of minutes draw, it's always a few minutes short. This one's actually a couple minutes longer. I don't think Vader and Sting ever had a bad match. So this is not one of them. You know, this is a good match. But 
I wish the creative was a little different. What'd you think? I, I, I don't disagree. Well, I guess I don't disagree. Let me, let's break it down a little bit. Um, I, well, first things first, the lack of communication and lack of detail that led to these time limits going over was a constant problem in WCW. And it was just lack of communication, right. coordination. The right hand wasn't speaking enough to the left hand and the talent sometimes didn't give a shit less <laughs> when it came to timing. It, it was, it was a challenge. And, and we saw that here. So let's acknowledge that there was poor communication and from a production point of view, not from a creative point of view, this is more of a production problem than a creative problem. The creative for this thing I liked, right? I liked because it was different in sometimes you need to present things in a different format or in a different presentation just to kind of break the monotony of what you do week in and week out. And I think setting this match up as a triangle match, which is weird, I guess it's a three way, but whatever. Um, with the time limit draws, I kind of dug it and it told a story. I think it did tell a great story. I think the match was a great match. I think the the way they kind of fucked up the time limits and all that, and and the way they communicated, you know, the the framework for the match in the beginning was a little hard to follow. Um, but overall, I really liked it. And you know, to to agree with Dave, which doesn't happen too often here, although I do agree with him on more than occasionally, or more than one occasion, I. Vader looked awesome here and so did Sting and finishing this up with, you know, the first main office feed. I creatively, I really, really loved that. I don't think it was executed creatively as well as it could have been, but the fact that, I mean, this had dusty all over it. Oh yeah. Dusty yeah. was dusty. Loved trying things that were different, you know, and, and, you know, you go back and read the things that Dave Meltzer said about dusty Rhodes back when dusty was booking They're fucking horrible. You know, and, and, you know, the, the term dusty finish probably originated in, in Meltzer's dirt sheet. And I understand it, but it's what people don't really understand is when you're, and again, I, I didn't have conversations with dusty about this. I'm not suggesting that I'm relaying, you know, things that he said to me or anything like that. I'm giving you my impression of having worked with the man for a long time and closely and, and being pretty good friends with him. Um, his, you know, people always kind of lightheartedly refer to dusty's vision, if you will, because he, he talked about his vision for things. It was part of the conversation you had with dusty Rhodes when you were in his office and we were, you know, he was explaining how we saw things playing out in a story or whatever. He used that term often. And, you know, we sometimes use it, you know, uh, to, to, to reference Dusty, the, my vision, if you will, babe, my vision, baby. But Dusty's, Dusty had vision. And part of what fueled his vision was trying to do different things. And sometimes those things worked, Starcade. Sometimes those things didn't work. But I, I respect Dusty Rhodes more than most people that have ever held that position because Dusty had the fucking balls to try something different. Yes. And he didn't care if he got criticized for it. 
I'm not saying it didn't hurt him. Right. Not didn't. I'm, I'm not going to suggest. And this is again my my opinion. It's not Dusty never said this to me. My opinion of Dusty Rhodes is he, he, like he's a human. Be- he was a human being, and he certainly didn't like hearing it, but it didn't keep him from trying. And when you talk about somebody in a creative position that's willing to try new things, knowing that if they fail, you're going to get fucking hammered by douchebags like Meltzer, I have more respect for someone like that than someone that maybe you know hits eight out of ten. Give me somebody that's fifty. That's a five hundred batter that tries new things over somebody that's, you know, maybe he's hitting eight, eight out of 10. He's an 800 batter, but those runs don't matter to me. They're not exciting to me. They're just fucking runs. They don't change anything. They don't change the nature of the game. They don't increase the number of people watching. They don't explore different ways of telling stories. You're just, you're just a fucking machine doing what you do. And eventually you get stale. You get very stale. And Dusty wasn't like that. Dusty would try new things. Sometimes they worked. Sometimes they didn't. And this was one that I think on paper worked really well in execution because of poor communication and poor production coordination. It didn't. But I, you know, and again, that's me looking at it from a producer's point of view. Sure. From a fa- from a purely fan's point of view, go to one minute, for, or one hour, 49 seconds. Excuse me. One hour, 49 minutes and 22 seconds over WWE Network. Watch this pay-per-view. Go fast forward if you must. If you're in a fucking hurry, I don't care. Go to one hour, 49 minutes and 22 seconds and just watch. And you tell me if it really mattered that they went over a minute or two. <laughs> just tell me if the audience cared. No, they didn't. They didn't because Uh, the emotion was there. The logic may not have been. The emotion was, huh? What a thought. It's funny to see, you know, we've often talked about how the business has changed and things back then were called a little more in the ring. You can see, uh, sting goes to the top rope for a splash and he expects Vader to get his knees up, but Vader doesn't. So you can, you can see sting call the spot to Vader. He's then going to bounce off the ropes and then Vader gets his knees up on just a regular splash off the ropes. But I don't think these guys ever had a bad match, even if there was a little miscommunication here or there. And some of that is because, well, this looks real because a lot of it probably is there's potatoes all over the place, but maybe God, the most- those, Va- those Vader punches on sting were brutal and sting sending some live rounds back too. I think that was uh, again, what do I know? But I've heard that. You know, guys like Flair, Harley would get on him. Hey man, you got to start hitting this guy back or I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, because Vader wanted you to return fire. Is that the same thing you've heard? Yeah. And you know, someday maybe I'll, I'll try to get Steve saying on a, a special episode of adfreeshows.com. I'm I'm sure he'd do it if I asked him. Um, and I would like to talk about his relationship with Vader because it went way beyond the ring. Right especially towards the end of Vader's life. So I, I'd really like to talk about that, but sting could go, you know, sting, sting is such a unique history and character or character in the history of, of WCW and wrestling in general sting. He was the one, he was the most likable. Like if you walked in to a WCW locker room, absolutely jacked full of every piece of talent in there and you had to pick out the one guy that would be most likely to get into a real fight or one guy that would be the toughest to get along with in the ring physically. 
Steve Borden would have been the last guy you would pick out of a hundred. He was such a, not, not that he wasn't capable. I'm not suggesting that at all, but Steve's person, Steve's personality when you were around him was he's just such a likable, positive energy type. You'd never heard him bitch. Right. Never. Even when he had a reason to, he wouldn't complain. He was always up. And, and I don't mean like a cheerleader, like trying to get a bunch of other people. I'm just, he himself, he was always positive and he liked to go. He was a competitive guy and the chemistry that he had with, with Vader was special from the very beginning into the, to the very end. But yeah, Vader liked to be lit up and I was what Vader didn't throw working punches. I mean, they were working punches to a degree, but He's I'd, I'd say he was 60% there every time he laid one in. Right. It would have been possibly, you know, that other 40% would only come from a, a sincere desire to create some or inflict some real damage. Um, but he took it right up to that point. He may not have intended to inflict real damage, but damn, he was just a shade shy of it. It was incredible watching that this morning. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Woo! Of course, by now, everyone has heard about the historically low mortgage rates. In fact, a lot of families are getting interest rates in the twos. That's right, the twos. But just last week, one expert said that we're on borrowed time with these low rates. So if saving money is important to your family, the time to act is now. Find out how much money you can save right now by getting a better rate, skipping your next two house payments, and cutting years of unnecessary payments off of your loan at SaveWithConrad.com. Really, uh, something special to see. Maybe the most spectacular thing that happens in the entire match though. How about Sting's uh German suplex on Vader? That's a lot of man to be slinging around like that. You, you know, we've all looked at Sting and gone, man, he's an amazing wrestler. He's an amazing character. He did amazing promos. You know, the, the, the surfer Sting character was super powerful during its era. NWO Sting will probably go down in some kind of a history book somewhere as being a, a really successful character and, and all that. Sting's done it all, but we oftentimes don't spend as much time talking about his real athletic ability and his, right. his potential. And I think here we just saw one is like, bam, holy shit, Sting could do that? That's what made him so much fun to watch. Really go out what of your way to watch this one. I think it's one of the better matches on the show. Um, I guess the goal here is, you know, we've got to have sort of a cheap finish with, uh, with someone attacking sting. We want to keep him unfazed by a loss or hurt him as little as possible, but we still need a monster heel for Hogan. So it probably checked all the boxes in that direction. Right. I agree. I agree. Let's get to, uh, this long segment that I think probably goes too long. It's Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. And they're talking to them both by satellite. Neither are here. And I guess Hogan is, is either from uh, Venice beach, California or Bel Air, Florida. And of course, Flair is in Las Vegas and Meltzer would say, actually, this segment was taped a few weeks earlier and wound up being a phone conversation with Flair and Hogan after the introduction by Gene, who mistimed several questions to the tape, although no doubt trying to talk to a tape and get it over can't be the easiest thing to pull off. Um, they had to cut the arena mics during the segment because the fans were rapidly cheering flair and booing Hogan. And the segment got over that Hogan said he would retire if flair could beat him and flair accepted, which they didn't exactly explain how could this could even happen since flair was suspended. 
Nick Bockwinkle then comes out and has to explain that they already knew what was happening and had a contract signed and had the usual non-explanation as to why Flair is no longer suspended and announced that the match would happen on October 23rd in Detroit in a cage match. There's a bit of an uh, awkward moment here where Flair can't really hear him and Hogan keeps talking to him in his promo voice. It turns into, I guess, sort of a bad phone call, but the gist is Hogan's going to put his career on the line. He just needs to prove to Ric Flair one more time, uh, that he's the world champion. And of course, Rick is still contending. I'm the real world champion. Talk to me about this whole situation. We'll, we'll talk about the actual matchmaking piece in a minute, but we're doing a live segment for a live crowd with pre-recorded tape. I mean, I guess it feels like it could be foolproof, but it doesn't really feel that way when you watch it. No, from a production perspective, that did not come off. And that would have fallen on me, by the way. Um, let's take the creative element of what you just described out of it. Right. Because that was, that, that was Rick. All right. Um, and Rick and Hogan would have laid out this conversation. So whatever was said creatively or wasn't said creatively, I can't comment too much on. Right. Other than whether I thought it worked or not. But that was Ric Flair and Hulk. Um, in terms of the production of it and the awkwardness of it and the attempt to make it feel real, that failure would have landed solely on my lap. And, and it, it did come off awkward. I'm not going to try to make excuses for it. It just it sucked. I, I, one of those ideas on paper looked like it might work. Everybody was excited about it when we laid it out. The execution of it failed quite miserably. Um, and I'm not even sure the conceit, the idea, um, was necessarily even a great idea. I think it was the, the idea was born more out of necessity because we needed it. We, we wanted to promote, not that we needed to, we wanted to promote Rick and Hulk. We wanted to build that story. Rick wasn't there. Um, Hogan wasn't there. Um, we wanted to create the sense that they were, that this was happening now. All there's all kinds of reasons why we justified it, but it doesn't really matter the execution both on a production end and a creative end fell way below par. What do you think of the, uh, sort of breathing new life into the real world's champion? This is really one of the more famous promos from flair, not necessarily because of what he says, but because we see, uh, the big gold belt. Now, of course, that's not the WCW world title. You'd have to go back a few years. When Rick first went to the WWF and took the NWA world title with him, of course, both sides are going to be embroiled in a lawsuit over, you can't show that on TV. So eventually they've got some matches in the can. The WWF starts to blur the actual big gold belt. In the meantime, they modify a tag belt, take the S off the word champions and a little banner where it says tag team. They replace it with three little CZs and he wears a tag belt to the ring, but it doesn't matter. We still get the same effect because we're digitizing it. We're blurring. It. They were intentionally misleading the audience by infringing <laughs> on an existing fucking copyright. Not, not necessarily untrue. And then they say, you know what, Reggie parks, we need you to make us a belt that looks like this big gold belt. So they made the belt that's in this segment. Now they of made course, a confusingly similar belt that infringed on the trademarks of the aforementioned trademark holder. Go ahead. All of that is technically true by the time technically. The well, I don't think anybody owned the trademark to that belt. 
Okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> it was in dispute. No, it, no, it was in no, dispute. If, no if doubt. If you were an attorney, if you were an attorney, you would argue that by virtue of the fact that that belt was on a copyrighted television program sure. previously, that it was a part of that. I mean, there's an argument to be made. You just don't throw in the fucking towel, right? Right. You fight that. You hire somebody like Jerry McDivitt to make up a bunch of shit and convince a judge that doesn't know his ass from a bag of rocks that your your side is telling the truth, okay. and you'll get away with it. But they were clearly stealing an idea, a concept, intellectual property that really belonged to someone else, and they were confusing the audience by making it appear that it was something that it wasn't and that there was a storyline evol evolving and developing that wasn't true. There's a lot of fucking copyright infringement and trademark infringement going on here, folks, aside from just the fact that they had to, they, they had to lower themselves to steal somebody else's belt. What could be worse? Throwing it in the trash. Yeah, I did that too. Sorry, I had to put myself over. So the big gold belt here, it's been nicknamed the Vegas big gold. And a lot of fans who are belt collectors always want to know why is that belt called the Vegas big gold? It's because of this. This is the only time we ever really see it on TV. And uh, for those of you who want to know where it is now, I believe it's framed on the wall of Mr. Hunter Hearst Helmsley at his home, or I guess Paul Levesque's home. I don't, I don't guess Hunter technically owns any property, uh, but Rick gifted it to him, it, but that's just me. Rick gifted it to him years ago with a little handwritten note that said, I wish I could have dropped this to you in 86 when I was really good or something like that. So, uh, it's framed nicely and it's home, but yeah, this is the only time we saw it on TV. I like the idea of him continuing the real world's champion. And we know that Hogan has the actual big gold belt. Were you just not feeling the whole sort of knockoff big gold version that we had here? Cause that could have been a cool little storyline for you guys to have both belts on TV. Yeah. I, I mean, again, this would have been a Rick Hulk, you know, creative discussion. I, I personally felt like it was reaching back a little too far. Okay. Um, that was just my impression. I, I didn't feel strongly about it. You know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't look at that time. I was learning. I was trying to learn from Rick. You right. Know, as, as a, as a writer, booker, whatever you want to call it, I was, I was absorbing. I was learn. I was in a learning mode. I wasn't in a doing mode. Uh, and, and, and I would have gone with whatever Rick and Hulk felt like would work. But my personal impression was it was just digging too far back for something that really didn't matter all that much to begin with. It did at the time it did to hardcore wrestling fans, but as far as WCW fans were concerned, generally meaning the vast majority of them, the whole NWA thing was, it, it was confusing. It was a blip on the radar and it wasn't a significant enough moment in time, in my opinion, to build upon. I don't, uh, I don't disagree necessarily. Let's talk about our main event build. This has been really something special here. We're going to play the promo that, that you and I love so much. It airs in July. I think it's uh, July 25th, 1994. I guess we should give you the backstory. Uh, Dustin Rose is in a feud with bunkhouse buck and Colonel Parker stud stable. And he fares well until Terry Funk returns to WCW and gets involved. Dustin finds himself in need of a tag partner 
and he convinces his old nemesis, Arn Anderson to join him and they team up and Arn, of course, double crosses Dustin at bash at the beach. A few weeks later, July 25th, 94, big dust has seen enough and dusty returns the TV and rains elbows on everyone. And then he takes the microphone and cuts one of wrestling's most fondly remembered promos. And we're going to play that at the end of the show today. Cause it is that good. He's going to drop some of the trademark dusty voice and just speak as himself. And he starts a promo talking about how Dustin had neglected or how he had neglected Dustin, at least as a father. And he tells him that the heels are chicken fed and other fun terms. And then he tears up and he asks to be his partner. And he says he needs a hug and a kiss to seal the deal. And the two embrace and man, the crowd goes bananas. This promo is something that I kind of forgot happened on the way to build this main event. So when they replayed it on the show, I mean, I got goosebumps again, watching it. This is one of the better promos in wrestling history. Is it not for me? It was because of the emotion that it created. I mean, this nothing, nothing crystallizes my rant earlier on about promos and the quality thereof or lack thereof in today's product and the approach to them, nothing crystallizes the example of what's missing today more than this promo. Really something special. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. If you've never heard it, you should go watch it, but I'll let you hear it at the end of the show today. They go on to team up at clash of the champions. They being the Rhodes boys. Uh, and they're going to take on Terry Funk and bunkhouse buck dusty and Dustin win by DQ, but the rivalry rages on and they tried to recreate a spot here, which was kind of fun. Uh, way back when gosh, a decade more or a decade or more prior to this, dusty's going to rear back with a chair and hit Ray trailer over the head with this chair. And not only does big Bubba not quote unquote, sell it, his hat doesn't even move. It's remarkable. They recreate that with a wooden chair here in Ming. And we haven't talked about it, but boy, is, is Ming's look here, something cool or what? I, I know that some fans make fun of this look for Ming, but he looks like a, a 1990s movie villain henchman. He looks fantastic in this. I like it. He looks fantastic. He looks dangerous as fuck. And, and, and there's a little bit of mystery involved. All, all great characteristics for a heel. Do you remember Dusty being excited to recreate this chair spot that he tried with Big Bubba a decade before? I, I don't. Again, that would have been a conversation that would have taken place between Dusty and, you know, I'm sure Dusty kind of laid this all out. I don't think Dusty and Flair had to communicate too much about how Dusty wanted this to go down, but I would assume that would have been a conversation between Dusty and, and Rick, uh, and I would not have been a part of that. So I, I can't comment on it. Uh, following the clash, it's announced that we're going to get a war games. That's going to include the stud stable, including Colonel Parker, uh, who is not excited to hear that news. Mean Gene can't wait to deliver it to him on a WCW Saturday night episode. I think everybody assumed it's going to be Arn Anderson, bunkhouse, buck Ming and Terry funk, but instead they announced that Ming is out and Colonel Robert Parker is in, but now as we march towards the pay-per-view and we wind down the month of August, dusty and Dustin need some tag partners. And Dusty goes and recruits Brian Knobs and Jerry Sags. And they're heels at the time. But this is an effective way to turn them to baby faces because they're gonna team up with Big Dusty and accept the invitation. 
what's the thinking here? The nasty boys had been such a great heel tag team. Did he like the idea of, or think they would be a big contributor to the match? Did he like the idea of making himself the third nasty boy, sort of like he had uh, a decade prior with uh, the road warriors? What's the thinking? And let's go get the nasties and make them good guys. Can't speak for dusty, but I can tell you from being an observer uh, and, and watching things evolve and develop. Dusty really loved the nasty boys. You know, I, I think he's somehow related or was somehow related to Jerry Sags wife, if I'm not mistaken, or, or some kind of a connection there. Um, but aside from all that, they were just, they were tight right. and the chemistry was good. And I think I can't obviously speak for Dusty, but I think his thinking might likely have been, you know, these are two guys that, that I like being in the ring with that I know I can have fun with that are easy to work with. And he just, I think Dusty felt that the chemistry would be good. And yes, it would get them over as baby faces, which was important because they weren't really effective heels to be honest with you, but they, they, they could be reasonably effective depending on the positioning of the story or a card, uh, as baby faces, but more than anything, I, I don't think Dusty even gave it that much thought. I think it was, wow, this will work because the chemistry is good and we can create emotion. Well, they did, uh, we're off for the match. Now they're going to go 19 minutes and five seconds. Of course, wouldn't you know it? The damn heels won the coin toss, Eric. Would you have ever imagined that would be the case in a war games that the bad guys would win the freaking coin flip. They've got the advantage, Eric. Hey, it's a 50, 50 shot, man. Who can call it? (laughs) That's why it's why it's a coin toss. There's only two sides. 50, 50 real talk. Have the baby faces a ever won a coin toss and B has the heel team. As long as Aaron Anderson was there, has he ever not started the match? It feels like, well, if Aaron's on the bad guy team, not only are they winning the toss, but he's in first. You know, I'd have to go back and check my records on that one and, and, and maybe Google wrestling coin tosses and, and try to find the data that would support a legitimate response. But I'll just go with, now nah, you're probably right. <laughs> it probably never happened. It never happened. It's unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, Arnold start for the same reason that Johnny B. Bad started, you know, the show uh, with Regal. Johnny, uh, uh, Arnold start a match for the same reason that we started out, you know, the Luchadors oftentimes in a lot of pay-per-views going into the, you know, in, in the mid-90s because it just set the fucking tone. And you you it framed the story from the moment the bell rang, which is my way of complimenting our, our, our partner here at, at, at adfreeshows.com. Uh, if that's where you're listening to us, um, same reason because you knew it was going to start out right. There's nothing worse than a match or a story or a movie or a song or a book that starts off bad and you got to force your, force your way through it until it gets good. Um, Arn was the guy that you could put in there in a situation and it's going to start out exactly the way you want it to. I got to tell you, it, uh, it tickled me to see them try to do some silly shit when they first get started. It's Dustin and Arn Anderson. And at one point, Arn gets his head between both of the rings that are butted up together, of course, and his shoulders are on the, uh, the edges of the apron, but his head is in the hole. And Dustin's going to come over and start to stand him straight up and then twist his legs around as if he's trying to twist his head off. And 
It's some silly that's a, shit. That's a thing of beauty, by the way. It was some silly shit. And Terry Funk had some fun too. He falls down in there, goes all the way down. It's some craziness. Uh, a couple notes I had during the match. Randy Anderson uh, appears to forget how to flip a coin. He flips it and then it looks like he just throws it on the back of his hand and then drops it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> of course, the heels always win. Uh, Terry Funk is in swinging a boot and falling <laughs> over the top rope and in between the rings, the crowd totally laughs, but it is within his character. Uh, when it's Klondike, uh, or when it's Colonel Parker's turn to get in, uh, he's next to referee, Nick Patrick. We see Klondike bill. We get lots of people who want to know, Hey, is that Klondike? Yes, it is. Um, Arn did hit a spine buster in the match, but the director misses it. And that, I guess that's sort of forgivable in one of these or in, uh, the, the three man battle Royal or the three ring battle Royal world war three. Of course, dusty comes in cleans house with elbows almost too quickly. And then he sets up the figure four on Colonel Robert Parker, big pop for that. And then the nasty boys take turns, really dropping big splashes on him, big elbows, one at a time, two at the same time. It's an interesting enough finish. Um, Meltzer's going to say it was a good match by normal standards, but nowhere close to previous war games. There was a lot more standing around and doing nothing and a lot more posturing as opposed to action. Several times the nasty boys seemed like they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they also used the cage far too much, like grinding heads into the cage, which doesn't make sense since blood isn't allowed. The show ended nearly nine minutes early, which left Bobby Heenan, Gene Okerlund and Tony Schiavone to do a painful time filling ad lib three and a quarter stars. I mean, there is some fun moments here. Like I did like when they, uh, I, I disagree with Meltzer. I like when they decided to sort of grind Arn Anderson's face into the cage and Bobby Heenan compares it to, uh, rubbing a cabbage against a shredder. That's okay for me, but I understand the criticism of you needed blood. You saw this one for the first time in a long time. What'd you think this time, Eric? Not typically my kind of match, but I found it to be very entertaining in the context of 1994 in September with the principles involved. I think it, I, I, I thought it was a great way to end the show. I thought it was entertaining. Um, I, I am not embarrassed about it. Let's put it that way. There's some times when you drag me through, especially going back to, you know, 93, 94, you can, you can drag me into some stuff that's pretty embarrassing and, and some things that happen even after that, um, where I actually hang up and I think, God, how could I have let that happen? This is not one of those times. I think go back September, 1994, look at the world in which we lived, look at the competition, look at what else was available and, and look where WCW was on their trajectory. I'm pretty happy with this one. I was excited to do this with you. Not embarrassed at all. Well, something special happens towards the end of the match. <laughs> According to dusty Rhodes on the war games, DVD, Colonel Robert Parker is going to fall victim to diarrhea during the final moments of the war games match. Yes, indeed. Colonel Robert Parker wearing white pants of all colors has shit himself. He stays seated for a rather unusual amount of time at the end of the match. He doesn't get up and leave the ring until after the director cuts to replays. And then we get our first clue as to what has happened. Instead of calling the action on replay, Heenan says, Oh my, where did that come from? Look at the, look at the Colonel's pants. He's had an accident. 
we never see, cause I think it's probably illegal, but we don't actually see the defecation, but Lord, a guy filling up his drawers live on pay-per-view wearing white. That's not a story you're going to fucking forget very often. No, not only are you not going to forget it, you're not going to forget it despite the efforts you make to attempt to forget it. It's just one of those. And I think it's probably because, you know, you can put yourself in Parker's shoes at that point. I mean, it can happen to anybody and and has, as I found out. A lot of people. Yeah. And knowing that we were going to do this show a couple of days ago, I, I did a little, I Googled wrestlers who shit themselves and (laughs) (laughs) no, I did. I love that so much. And there's, there's a top 10 list and I think it's what culture. Yeah. You know, the site, what culture wrestling or whatever it is, what culture.com that that's where I found it. And I was actually going to print it out and save it just for this, this, uh, podcast so I could kind of run down the list of people who joined the ranks of Colonel Parker and shat themselves on shat. I learned how to say that from reading stuff from overseas, like in the UK, they never say shit themselves. They say shat themselves. I think shat themselves sounds much better. It sounds a little bit like shot themselves, which could be confusing in the context of what happens on a pay-per-view, but I think shat with an A themselves kind of lends a, just a little bit of sophistication to the incident in a way that you can talk about it without feeling like you're talking about, you know, college kind of freshman humor. But yeah, there's been a long list of people who have shat with an A themselves in, in the wrestling ring. Uh, like we said, John Cena, uh, one of them, uh, CM Punk, one of them. There's been many, many more. So I encourage all of you when you're done listening to this. And by the way, I want to make sure people don't – Please understand, this is not the end of this podcast. We are not going to end on a shitty note. <laughs> We're not going to end that way. We're going to end on one of the best promos you've ever heard in your life. Well, let's talk about the we match, get there, though. We got to talk some shit. Before we finish talking about poop, because I'm going to talk about it as long as you want to. But I don't. Okay, the match itself. What do you think? Again, not my kind of match, but I, it, it served its purpose. It was entertaining the the setup for it with Dusty and his promo and the relationship with Dustin and the heartfelt, I mean, all of that. And then, no, man, I, I, I here, if, if I want to judge it, like, you know, some smart Mark living in his basement, judging all matches based on the quality of, of, of the technical wrestling, <laughs> probably wouldn't register on a Richter scale, but if I'm thinking about storytelling and emotion, I I'm, I'm giving it a seven. Let's, uh, how about you? Come on. You always put me on the spot. What do you think? I thought the main event was a bit of a letdown. I thought the story was better than the execution. I would have liked to have seen, I mean, to me, the Vader, the Vader thing felt like a bigger match when it was all over. Just in my opinion. No, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that if these would have been switched, it would have been better, but yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Meltzer says no surprises, nothing particularly bad in the ring, nothing particularly great, nothing of particular great interest. And nobody expected that there would be, this was the odd man out pay-per-view show. The show Hogan had to miss since his contract called for three pay-per-views for the remainder of 94. And for storyline purposes, flair was kept off the show as well. The attempt was to use one of Dusty Rhodes' best gimmick ideas ever in war games and use the Rhodes as a focal point. 
to carry the show since the main event everyone was waiting for wouldn't take place until Halloween Havoc. It's hard for me to disagree with any of that. The readers of the Wrestling Observer gave this show pretty underwhelming reviews. 51% thumbs down, 27.6% thumbs up, and 21.4% thumbs in the middle. Of course, it was overwhelmingly voted that Austin Duggan was the worst match, but I don't know if that was even really a match at 35 seconds. What say you? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? You gave it a seven. I guess that's a thumbs up. Yeah, it's marginal thumbs up. Um, yeah, again, for what it was and what its goal was and the context in which we did it, yeah, it could have been better. I agree with you. Vader Singh, and, you know, Guardian Angel in the main event probably made more sense and would have been a better way to end the show. But I really did like the main event in terms of its entertainment value more than anything. I love the way it was set up. Yeah, listen, the storyline was really, really well done. We're going to play that promo for you at the end of the episode. But first, we asked you guys if you had questions about War Games 94. And uh, we got a bunch. There's no way we'll get to them all. Let's do a few here rapid fire, Eric. Nicholas wants to know, during this period of time, Eric, did you ever have any thoughts of leaving WCW because of the poor state the company was in? Did you other have did you have other job opportunities available that you might have taken hadn't things changed? I was about to leave WCW under Bill Watts until Bill Watts got himself shit canned and Bill, and Bill Shaw came in and said basically here's what's going to happen. WCW is going to succeed and survive or it's going to fail based on your ability to perform over the next 12 months. That's summarizing the conversation. Once I heard that I had I had gone from planning to leave WCW under Bill Watts to throwing my hat in or throwing my name into the hat to become the executive producer. So the answer is yes, I had thought about it while I was working for Bill Watts. Once Bill Watts was fired, I kind of uh, rethought my position. I'm trying to do this fast because you said do it fast. Oh no, no, we're all good. Uh, Wrestling Meme Hotline asks, who would you book in a modern day stud stable? That takes too much time to think about. Can't answer it. I have to do some research to see what's out there. Uh, Andrew was Hangman the t- Page. Hangman Page would be leading it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, he's got to be in it. You, you, you cannot have. You cannot have that kind of a stable, the stud stable, without a guy that fucking rides a horse through across a football field. Are you kidding me? Okay, he'd be, like he'd be calling the shots. So let's put that's, him in that's there. That's where I'd start. And let's put FTR in there. You would like, oh yeah, come on. We're booking brother. We're We're changing the world as we speak. Mance. You like Mance. Let's throw Mance in there. Mm. He's a fucking bunkhouse book. He's from Bucks, North Tennessee. God damn it. Mm. We'll talk about that one. (laughs) Andrew was in attendance and wanted to know, did the loser leaves town match end as planned? I asked because, uh, well, I was pissed. And it does feel like a sudden finish. Like of all the things to take Cactus Jack down, just to fucking, oh, I ran into Dave and then you're going to roll me up and that's it. Yeah. I I didn't lay the match out, so I'm not going to try to make excuses or make up shit to make it sound like I was more involved than I was it, but it was a mess and I wouldn't blame anybody for being disappointed, especially Mick Foley or Kevin. It was just, it was like, uh, let's get this over with and get the fuck out of here more than it was. Let's do the best we can to make this as entertaining as possible. I really felt like they were just checking the box and getting through it to get over it. 
Mike Messier asks, how close was Steve Austin to being booked in an angle against Hogan? Or was that never really going to happen? No matter what Hogan did. Uh, that's an interesting question because there has been a little bit of rumor and innuendo. And I think you've even shared it briefly on the show that Austin was trying whatever he could to work with Hogan, including a pretty far out there idea. Let's be careful not to create the wrong impression by trying to be entertaining and descriptive. Okay. There you go. Uh, I don't think Steve was trying anything possible to work a program with Hogan. I think Steve recognized, and I'm paraphrasing this or not even paraphrasing it. I'm, I'm giving you my assumption, not, not a conversation that I had with Steve. I want to make that very clear. I don't do what other people do. I stick to facts and I make it clear when I have an opinion versus a specific recall. This is my opinion. Um, Steve saw the handwriting on the wall with Hogan. Steve being a professional, meaning wanting to be at the top, wanting to be as significant and as important as he could possibly be in reaching his, his potential as an individual, he saw an opportunity to work with Hogan wanted to work with him. I don't, I never got the sense that Steve was desperate or, you know, it was the most important thing to him. Even at the time he did come to me with, with an, one idea, not, not several, but he came to me with one idea where it, it, the audience would find out or Hogan would find out that Steve was, I can't remember if it was his son or his brother. Um, but, but Steve came to me with the idea that somehow he would be related to Hulk Hogan and, and tag with him. So that, that's a fact. Now, Steve may not remember it. It happened. I remember where it happened because it was an awkward conversation for me to have in front of other people. <clears throat> we were back, you know, kind of in, in center stage in the main locker room, dressing room area. There was one bigger than the rest. And we were back there. And I think he and I and maybe a trainer or two would have been the only ones in the room. And he kind of not cornered me, but he, we, we passed each other kind of in the doorway and he stopped me and he kind of laid this out and wanted me to pitch it to Hulk. And I, I just remember hearing it going, oh. And the reason I was kind of concerned about what I was hearing wasn't because I thought it was a bad idea at all, actually. Um, I may have even liked the idea, but I knew from having talked with Hulk and Rick for the months leading up to Hulk Hogan signing with WCW, how reticent Hulk was to work with anybody that he didn't really know and hadn't worked with in the past. Right. And, and Steve was one of those guys. So I was hearing an idea that I, I probably kind of dug and liked because it actually did make a little sense. And Steve and I got along pretty well uh, up until the day that I fired him. We got along pretty well. Not, you know, we didn't hang out and socialize and drink beer together and shit like that, but we, we got along well. Um, so I, I kind of dug the idea, but I also knew it would be like, you know, swimming upstream. So that's the only reason I remember it. TJ wants to know, did you enjoy the war games match as a concept or some of the production issues you had to overcome with an additional ring that's also covered by a cage? I, I didn't like it. It was it, 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 for the same reasons that I don't like, you know, uh, garbage matches whatever you want to call them. Uh, I just, there's too much going on. It's, it, it becomes too unbelievable at times. It, 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 
it's hard to shoot, obviously, you know, we taught, we covered a lot of missed shots here, you know, and missed opportunities where the direct right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Part of that is because of the fact that you've got two rings. And part of it is because of the fact that oftentimes talent was kind of improving in the ring and calling it in the ring, whatever you want to call it. And the good, Good part of it is, you know, improv, calling it in the ring, reacting to the audience. Those are all, it's a really good way, <coughs> excuse me, to approach a match. The risk is you're going to end up doing stuff that the director isn't ready for or your handheld cameramen are not ready for. They didn't anticipate it. Keep in mind when, you know, you know, I've never shot a match, right? I've never been a cameraman. So what I'm about to say is just my conjecture. Right. But, but you know, I have you know, videotaped, um, action in the past. And, and when you're looking through a viewfinder, you know, even, even on a handheld camera, you're, you have no field of vision. You have no peripheral vision. You're looking at exactly what is going on immediately in front of you. And oftentimes in order to catch something that's about to happen, you have to anticipate it. If you're the cameraman, you have to know what's coming before it happens. If you shoot wrestling, like you shoot sports, which is just following the action, you'll never get 50% of the drama and the setup and, and, and the things you need to get as a cameraman in order to shoot wrestling. It's why Turner had a real tough time early on before nitro, because a lot of our cam, you know, we had Jackie Crockett, who was our in-house handheld guy. Um, but a lot of the rest of our handheld cameramen came to us from Turner sports. If they didn't have anything to do that particular day and we were shooting an episode over, you know, center stage, we would have to use Turner sports, uh, production staff, which is fine, except for sometimes more than occasionally we would get handheld cameramen that weren't used to wrestling. Mm. And when I say used to wrestling, meaning they couldn't anticipate what was going to happen before it happened because they were used to following sports. Just follow the ball. That's all. Just follow the ball. Right. Follow the action. Whereas with wrestling, you have to be prepared for what's going to happen in about 30 seconds. Right. And, and if you don't know about it in advance, the chances are you're not going to see it happening through your peripheral vision while you're shooting it. Now, your director in the truck, who's got you know seven or eight different monitors going on, he or she could see what's developing and could call to anticipate or call to, you know let the let the handheld camera operator know that it's about to happen. And most of the time, you catch it. Most of the time, you pick it up fast enough. Sometimes you don't, but that's just the risk you take with calling stuff in the, in the ring. Now add an additional ring, you know, double the stage area, double the opportunity, you know, for things to happen that you couldn't see happening in, in, in advance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you increase the odds of missing a shot. Let's uh, let's do another question here. Uh, ben wants to know Nick Bockwinkle played the role of WCW commissioner in the mid nineties who lobbied for him to have that role. And why did he leave? Uh, that was my, my choice. Uh, I didn't lobby for him. I just hired him. Right. I didn't have to lobby with anybody. Um, that was on me because I, I, to this day, I think that Nick Bockwinkle is one of the best performers on the mic, especially as a heel. Let me point that out. 
especially as a heel. I, I don't I don't think there's been anybody in the last 40 years that was better than Mick. As good as, yeah. Better? Mm, I don't think so, in my opinion. Just my opinion. Here's the mistake I made. Um, Nick was at his most comfortable as a heel. Right. He was at his best as a heel. As a commissioner, he was a babyface. Now, he got to do things that the heels were pissed off about and things like that. But he's still, at the end of it, he was a babyface. Right. And that just wasn't where Nick's comfort was. That he wasn't... He could, he could, he could play both in, in one character as a heel. He was exceptional in the other. He was decent. And this just wasn't a great role for, for Nick, not because he didn't have the talent, just because it was, it was bad casting. And that was on me. And that's why he left. He wasn't having any fun and it wasn't really working for, for me. So at the end of the day, we, we agreed, you know, amicably enough that, uh, it just wasn't working out. The Rosencoaster wants to know, where did you see Ricky Steamboat's trajectory in 94? Had he not gone down with injury? Ricky Steamboat's one of those guys where it just feels like he's got some of the worst luck or worst timing in wrestling history. Uh, but this is another situation supposed to be in a pretty high profile United States title match with Steve Austin, but he's out. So he's got to drop the belt. Would you, uh, what do you have in the, in the cards for him? Or what do you think his upwards mobility could have been had this not happened? No, it's easy for me to, you know, 25 years later, 26 years later, give you my opinion on where Ricky Steamboat could have gone. Look, Ricky was, as we all know, one of the better talents in the business, you know, in, in the eighties and in, in, into the nineties. Um, but <clears throat> you know, when I, when I first got to WCW as an announcer, what was my opinion of Ricky, the dragon Steamboat? Fucking awesome. I loved him. Love watching his matches. I even dug his promos. It wasn't the strongest suit. You know, Ricky's promos were not his strength, but they weren't a weakness either. They were, they were decent promos and they were believable promos. Um, but his work in the ring was phenomenal and his look was great. So I, I was a big fan of his as a talent, but by the time I got into management, the injuries, uh, and the other issues in his life were already kind of stacking up and the handwriting was more or less on the wall. So from a, a, where could he go perspective back in 1994, I didn't see a lot of future for him because of the injuries and the other things going on in his life. Meaning his ex-wife. Yeah, we, we got that one. Um, one last one, then we'll wrap things up. You know where we're going. We got to end on a high note. Well, of course, we're going to end with that dusty promo. But before we get there, and as a reminder, next week we're covering Fall Brawl 95. If you got a question, you can ask it just like Jason's asked our next question. Just go ask it over at 83 Weeks. Jason wants to know, Eric, what was the reaction backstage when Colonel Robert Parker shit his pants? Yeah, I wasn't in the locker room, so I can't give you a firsthand description of what was going on. But uh, let's just say there was a lot. There, there was a lot of chuckling backstage. I think everybody, every look, every, Colonel Parker was a very, very well liked guy by everybody. I mean, he was he was a good guy to be around. He was just somebody that, if he was backstage and and was talking, you kind of wanted to be, you know in the vicinity because he was just a funny, entertaining guy in real life. So there were, there was a lot of good natured ribbing. Let's I'll just leave it at that. Good natured ribbing. Well, that's what we're going to be doing next week. We'll be back. Of course, as we said, with fall brawl, 1995, 
I'm looking forward to this one, man. I think this is going to be a fun show. I enjoy watching these old war games with you. Uh, this maybe wasn't my favorite war games, but Lord, they told some great stories to get there. We hope you dug it. Stay tuned by the way, on the other side of fall brawl 95, we're doing something that when I first laid it out, I had no idea how apropos it would be the AWA team challenge series from 1989. It's like the original Thunderdome, huh? No shit, right? How prescient prescient it's the word for the day here on 83 weeks how prescient was Vern Gagne when he created the team challenge series and let me dispel the fucking rumor right now I had nothing to do with that by the way <laughs> I, I, I couldn't get near the the creative room or the booking room uh in AWA so however that narrative got started um I have no idea but truth be known that wasn't my idea but nevertheless how prescient was Vern Gagne when he de- when he decided to create the Team Challenge series. Now, Vern was doing it out of necessity. We'll go into that next week, perhaps. Whereas what we're watching now um, is, is out of necessity, but for a completely different set of circumstances. Vern was running out of money, couldn't draw 25 people to an event to save his life. And here we are in COVID, and we can't draw 25 people. Well, now we can, I guess we can cheat it, but now you can't put people in, in the arena for an entirely different set of reasons, but we get a look at, you know, <laughs> team challenge series circa what? 1988, 1989, that's where we'll be here. 1989. So we're looking at, you know, being forced to produce TV without a crowd in 1989, and comparing it to being forced to produce TV without a crowd in 2020. My, how things change yet stay the same. Stay tuned next week, fall brawl, 1995. And then of course we've got that, uh, AWA team challenge series from 89 coming up on the 28th, but really all the fun is happening over at adfreeshows.com. You get all these shows early and ad free this past weekend. We had a, a little, uh, zoom chat with Sean Mooney. Uh, the prior weekend to that, I think we had, uh, Luke Gallows. We've also had uh, blue Manny. We've got some other big ones coming up as well, but what everybody's talking about over at ad free shows is Eric fires back and boy, you went both barrels on some folks recently, but we've got another one coming up later this month, Eric, Eric fires back part four. And we're finally going to get some Vince Russo. Are you nervous, anxious, excited? None of that, all that. I'm not nervous not nervous at all. You know, I, I, again, I'm at that crossroads. I have to be careful how far I go. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to manage myself. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, it, it's always an emotional experience when we do these things because it just, you, you bring out, I don't know if it's the worst in me, but it's, it's an uglier side of me. And I readily admit that. And I try my best to, you know, manage that but these eric fires back things i, mean, I guess because i you know when you say when dave Meltzer said this or dave Meltzer said that i mean, fuck who cares right i mean i do care i did some of the shit pisses me off because i don't like when people lie but or distort but you know when i hear people saying these things it's almost like they're standing right next to me right and then, then a whole nother part of me comes to life that I've suppressed and tried to manage <laughs> for decades and decades and decades. There's this, there's a dark, I don't want to say evil because I feel it's justified and you can't justify evil. So I, I, it's not evil, but it's really fucking dark and words come out of my, my mouth and thoughts, you know, 
start to shape in my head that sometimes scares even me. I scare myself sometimes. And so I, I'm aware of it. Let's just say I'm not nervous. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm not nervous about it. I'm aware of it. That's all. Well, we hope you're aware adfreeshows.com is the place to be until next time. He is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here for fall brawl 95 with a little Arn Anderson versus Ric Flair action should be a good time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Come here, Dustin. I want everybody to bear with me just for a minute. I want to talk to my son in front of the whole world. When you were born, when you were a baby, when you were born, I went off to seek my fame and fortune. I neglected you. Then later on, when I became world's heavyweight champion, I neglected you. Then lately I became this corporate cowboy, if you will, in public with a suit and tie on, and I neglected you. And when it came down to choose a partner, I was off in Hollywood and I neglected you. Let me tell you something, Buckhouse Buck, let me tell you, Colonel Parker, they all nothing but chicken thieves. That's all they are, brother. Let me tell you something else. Terry Funk is nothing but a low life, watermelon thief, egg sucking dog. And let me tell you something about Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson, my son, offered up his innocence and you paid him back in scorn. The hell with you, Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson has never been nothing but a walk behind her. And when you walk behind and you're not a leader, then the view never changes, baby. The view never changes, baby. The view never changes. You have the ability to be the world's heavyweight wrestling champion. There is not a greater athlete at your age in this sport. But I, I want to ask you a favor. I want to ask you a favor in front of I pray God in the whole world. I know that the Clash of Champions on August the 24th, you put your name on the dotted line. I don't want you to look for another partner. I don't want you to go and find another man. I don't want you to go out and get on your knees and beg another scum-sucking pig to be your partner. I'm asking you if you can carry this old out of shape Oh, been out. Oh, spin the legged man. I want to be your partner. I don't need no handshake because out there right now tonight, there's 
those people with their brothers and their sisters and their wives, they are blood. The Kennedys were blood. The Earths were blood. The roads are blood. I don't need a handshake. What I need now from you is just a hug and a kiss to seal the deal, baby. Hey, you love the show, right? Well, show off that love with a shirt from ericbischoff.com or get your gimmick at boxagimmicks.com, the official store of 83 Weeks. Posters, hats, tumblers, accessories, and more. Boxagimmicks.com. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection. That's no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry. Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but recently he's kicked everything up a notch to better serve his friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, Patrick, if you don't mind, would it be okay if I recorded this conversation? Yeah, no problem. Awesome. I'd love to be able to use our conversation for all of Conrad's podcasts. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Awesome. Okay, so what made you come to Save With Conrad in the first place? The time just seemed right. Me and my wife just had a baby and we were looking to trim some costs and it seemed like a good time to pull the trigger and see, at the very least, you know, what we could get from from Conrad to better our you know, monthly rate and just to save a little bit of money. Was there something specific that he said that really made you want to take that step? Every time on the podcast ads when he said, hey, skip your next two house payments. I'm going, well, that just sounds perfect. I can build up the two months. That that always seemed appealing, and this time it had me sold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to turn away the chance at saving money. Now, at, through the whole process and everything that you just shared with me, um, was there anything that we could improve, maybe um, do better in the future? I'm, I'll be honest with you. Like, just in terms of anything I could you know, say improve I mean that one I can't really think of because all the things that I just said were positive that's the thing that a lot of other companies don't necessarily always have um how much money was Save with Conrad able to save you guys at the very least um it dropped my rate by an entire point uh percentage point and we save about you know a little over a hundred dollars or so a month it's not just right at if you could tell any of our listeners anything about say with conrad or encourage them what would you tell them i would say um take advantage of the ad it you know everything that is said that you hear on those ads is true so what are you waiting for find out how much money you can save right now for free 
You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.